Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. And today... Uh, you might hear some gentle chewing noises in the background. Yes, it's it's me gnawing on my bone. <laughs> <laughs> it is my new rescue puppy, Fork. Um, she has a bit of separation anxiety that we're trying to work on. So at the moment, uh, she's being appeased with a yak milk chew. Yes. Uh, which Kenna inquired what the fuck that meant. <laughs> It's basically a vegetarian hippie dog treat that's just a really hard block of dog-friendly cheese. I thought it was like a weird hard sponge. It kind of looks like a weird hard sponge. It's like the alternative to giving your dog just like a bone or a rawhide. Which, uh, I don't know the, are those good for your dogs? I don't know, they really fucking like them though. Yeah. They love those things. Yeah, I've heard different things about whether you should give... But, you know, I don't have a dog, so it's like... I mean, I've had dogs in the past, but... It's hard. It's hard. To me, there's no right uh, way to raise a dog as long as you take care of it and you try and you're nice to it. That's how I feel kind of about, Mm. like, kids. Like, you hear people just be like, I can't believe that parent did blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't know. The kid seems alive to me. The kid seems alive and doing all right. Yeah. (laughs) That's how I feel about this dog. So I rescued this dog. Um... Her original owner was really, really nice, honestly. She just was like, I don't have, like, the proper resources and support to, like, train this dog and take care of it as much as she wants. So I got her, and she is a purebred dachshund. She She is very gorgeous. She's a beautiful dog. She's a beautiful dog. She's very weird. Um, (laughs) She loves me. She's very, very bonded to me. She's Um, kind of obsessed with you. She's, like, obsessed with me, Yeah. So we're potty training right now, and her being obsessed with me is, like, useful because that means I can always have eyes on her. So I'm like, what are you doing over there? What's going on? Uh, But it's not great because she can't be more than, like, three feet away from me at any time without losing it. Oh, yeah. Uh, The howls are pretty loud for such a small doggy. Yes, yes. And she also doesn't know how to walk on a leash on the street because the noises are so scary. Which is really cute. So anyway, we're starting with potty training, and then we're going to move on to separation anxiety. So for now, you might hear the noises of a small baby dachshund. Yes. Going about her day. She's really leaning into this yak chew thing now. <laughs> she likes that. She's good. She's good. Um, all right. Aside from me introducing my new dog, Fork, on the pod, what other housekeeping stuff do we have? Um, first of all, thank you so much for supporting us by just listening. And we want to thank... Our patrons on Patreon, um, if you'd like to listen to more of us, get bonus episodes, bonus content, it's at patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. And for $3 a month, you can um, get two bonus episodes per month. We also sometimes post little fun extras, such as we had like a link to a very our own personalized budgeting spreadsheet. Yes, that's true. And uh, you might have heard that's $3 a month now. It did go up from $2 a month before. So if you were enrolled and subscribed at $2 a month before, you're locked in forever. You are locked in. You are the original. Yeah, we named your tier the original besties. So that price will not go up for you. But if you are new to us and thinking about subscribing, yes, it will be $3 a month, $1.50 per bonus episode. I think that's a pretty good price for I media today. I think that's today. pretty fair, yeah. I think it is. Uh, You know, inflation, you know? <laughs> inflation. <laughs> Plus, we, you know, we keep saying this forever. We want to get 
be able to put more back into the show. Yes. And realistically, that that extra buck makes a difference. It really does. It really does. Um, also, another thing that I wanted to talk about is just to thank everybody for bearing with us um, for the time we spent off. I yes. know we've been a little inconsistent so far in the past few months, but we don't want that to maintain. Um, so, yeah, basically... It's kind of sad, but the reason why I, I had to take some time off is because my beloved elderly dachshund I had for 16 years passed away, and I was very, very sad and grieving about it. Um, and then after I kind of felt okay about that, then I just adopted this demon puppy. So yes. two, two back-to-back doggy things. So thank you guys for bearing with us when we have to take weeks off for our very real-life stuff that gets in the mix. Um, but yeah, we're going to be more more consistent going forward like we mentioned we would be and i know you guys have been talking on social media how you wish it was more consistent and you're bummed out about it so we see those comments and we hear you and our goal is always to put as much time into the podcast as we can because i don't know about you can it's my favorite thing i do for work yeah it is the funnest thing um for for it is work it's it work. work it's definitely work um you know you do I'm like you do the research and I and I answer your questions, which yes. is not as much time as you, but mm-hmm. you know it's a lot. It's a lot. I'm uh, you know, I, I I'm like the uh, I'm like Ed McMahon. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna say yes for many reasons, except for I don't have martinis for lunch. But you know, we could change that if you wanted. We I mean, work on that. <laughs> Honestly, this year is the year I have discovered the martini. I had the best martini of my life when we were in New York. Really? This year. Yes. Ah. The best martini of my life and the best ramen I've ever had in my entire life. Yeah, well, New York, they're really good with the Asian foods. Um, in the United States, they really, they come through on the Asian cuisines. I mean, everything I ate in, in New York was great. Yeah, I wish I could say the same. Um, well, you're, uh, you, I eat more variety of Yeah, stuff. I'm vegan. It's a little harder. They don't have as much vegan food in New York as they do in LA. We're, I'm spoiled. I'm a spoiled vegan in LA. Yeah. I mean, when I, actually, when I was vegan, I lived in the greatest city on the planet to be vegan, which is Portland. Portland's great for being vegan. Oh, oh my, my God. God. But I was vegan before there was, like, anything in restaurants besides, like, maybe, maybe a Boca burger. And those <laughs> things taste like uh car tires yeah they're not great they're i mean i don't know maybe they've maybe now i'd be like oh boca burger but at the time i was like this tastes like fucking well it's nostalgic now i think it tastes like you know like on playgrounds where they have like the best <laughs> like the plastic shredded like oh it's like kind of bouncy yeah it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. yeah it kind of tastes like asphalt um yes so on top of the Boca Burgers and the $3 tier and the adopting a new dog and the thanking you all for us missing some time due to personal life stuff, do we have anything else for housekeeping before we start the episode? I feel like that's it. I feel like that's it too. Okay, so let's get started. Woo. All right, Kenna, today's question is another easy one. Oh, God. It's going to be so They're easy. They're so easy. Um, this <laughs> one is, do you have student loans? Fuck yeah. Yes. Okay, talk to me about your student loans. What do we have going on? Um, well, actually, they are the most manageable they've ever been in my life. Uh, I have loans to the great college of the University of Denver, Woo. which no one realizes is a fancy school. UOD. 
It's the it's the Ivy League of Colorado. <laughs> I love that for colleges, something's always the Ivy League of something. Like people are like Stanford's the Ivy League of the West Coast. You know, yeah. everything's the Ivy League of something else. Yeah, it is. Well, because like most people, like the big school in Colorado is Boulder. You know, that's okay. the big school. That's the one that people go to. There's also, I feel like, Naropa, which is like... I've never heard of that. It's basically like, what's the school in Olympia, Washington? Evergreen. Evergreen. It's basically like the Evergreen of Colorado. Got it. But my school was pretty fucking fancy. They had gold roofs on the building. Literally it's gold? Literally gold. Whoa. Yeah. And like, it's like where all the Colorado, like, dynasty families go, like... Peach Coors, you know, I like know all the Coors, is. Coors beer. Oh. Yeah. I also, also alma mater of Condoleezza Rice. Okay. So my job when I was uh, in college, I worked at the, the school library in the archives. I was a student archivist assistant. Oh. Was to just uh, give photos to the press of Condoleezza Rice. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, at, they actually were like, you need to go to library school. You should become a student archivist. And I was like. I am doing the same job as this other lady who has a master's degree in library science and we're both getting paid $10 an hour. But I love librarians. It's not about the money. But they are underpaid. They are underpaid and, you know. Not not a good financial investment. You got to do it for the love of the book. I did not have as much love of the book, although I was really good at organizing. Yeah, I could see that. Um, I am, I'm a, I'm good at spreadsheets. Yeah. Not as good as you. I love a spreadsheet. But I'm pretty good at spreadsheets. Okay, so what, let's talk the damage. Let's talk numbers. What okay. is, what, what was the student loan cost you left with after college? Well, my parents took out some loans too. They're very nice. Like They I have took out loans on your behalf. The on parent my, student loan. Mm-hmm. Yes. They, for me and my sister. Wow. Um, and they just paid those off. That was really nice of them. That's so I nice. I still have student loans. I want to say in the beginning it was about 30 grand. Yeah. Because my school is actually like quite expensive. I had got a bunch of scholarships and stuff, but the like retail price or whatever was 30K a year. Got it. That's so, exactly like my school's prices. Yeah. So it was like 30K a year. Yeah. So I think I left with about 20, 30K of debt. And now I'm down to about. 10? Oh, we're running really similar numbers. Um, Yeah, so I currently have $8,173.98 of student loan debt left. Yeah, I have two. I have like a Perkins loan and like a federal loan. Oh, I have a bunch. I have like eight loans. Yeah, I have two. I think one is about eight and one is two. Yeah. But um, I was so, I was really excited when they're like the student loan forgiveness thing was going to happen because I was like, Booyah. 10K. That's what I got. Yeah. But, also, but one of my student loans, they're like, actually, like, actually, this is a private loan, so you don't qualify for shit. Yeah. I no, still had to true. pay during the pandemic. Yeah. The private loans are different. Um, Yeah. So I, I've got, you've got around 10K left. I've got around 8K left. I think at this point, I could probably afford to semi-comfortably pay off my remaining 8k like I might have to move around some money save for my retirement which could incur like huge tax penalties so it's probably not smart for me to do it but I probably could if I wanted um if I really wanted and also though I've noticed that having my student loans active helps keep my credit score really high because you know I have that, that is wild weird, high credit score that is really fucking weird like if you have student loans and you pay them on time it makes your credit higher well and also here's the thing so my credit score depending on who pulls it is usually between 813 and 8 
30, sometimes it's up to 835, 840. It's a really good credit score. But two of the factors that go into having a credit score is one, the number of open accounts you have. And like I said, I had a different loan for every single term of school. So I had eight open loans, so that's eight accounts. So if I pay off my student loans, those eight accounts close and all of a sudden my total number of open accounts so low my credit score drops and then the second thing is that like most people my student loans were I took them out as a teenager I was really really young so they're my longest account so if I close them all of a sudden my total length of open credit gets like five years shorter and that negatively affects my credit score too I just figure I'm gonna be I'm never like my plan is probably like I'll never pay more than the minimum exactly for that reason yeah um but yeah, I took out those loans when I was 17. Right. No, I, I think I had just turned 19. I like maybe I took them out in August of the year I turned 19 in August. So either like 18 or 19. But part of me like you keeps thinking maybe they will actually get waived for the 10K and under like Biden was talking about. There's been um, that thing. But then also on top of that, my school keeps getting sued. Like there's been several class action lawsuits where lots of people do get their loans waived because it's like a scam fraud thing. And I always join the class action lawsuits, but the ones I join never win, but other people have won. So I'm like, something's going to happen one day and I'm not going to have to pay these back. I don't think. Um, but yeah, haven't been that lucky yet. You know? Yeah. I am not going to hold my breath because I feel like I'm so pissed off because it's like the government could have just erased them yeah. and like, but they're like, you have to fill out a form and blah, blah, blah. And then that gave time for like assholes to make like suits against the bill. So yeah. it's like, you should have just done it. And then we'd be like, oh, they said that you now have to pay it back. They would, nobody would have allowed that to happen because people would have been so pissed off at like Republicans. Yeah. Um, I also think it's like, Even the fact that I could pay these off if I wanted to, even though it might not be financially advisable, because like I said, I'd probably have to like pull for my retirement savings and stuff. It is a relatively recent development that I'd even be able to do that. Like I would say up until four years ago, there's no way I could have paid these things off. And then as recently as five or six years ago, my student loans are actually a major source of stress in my life. Yeah, when I was first out of college, um, I made no money. It was really difficult to pay them. Right. I mean, mine were $250 a month was my minimum for my student loans, which isn't a lot of money. But when you're super broke, it's hard. Yeah. Like, okay. So when I graduated, oh God, you know, like God, 2007, like when I moved to Portland in 2007, like my rent, my rent was like $300. Right. So your student loans would have been almost the same price as your rent or maybe the same price. Yeah. I mean, those were the halcyon days. I mean, like, but, you know, rent was cheap up until, like, what, like, 2012? Yeah. Yeah. I'd you know what I blame? Instagram. Really? I have no proof. <laughs> Wait, I need to hear this theory. <laughs> well, okay. So my theory is that, like, basically people realized that, like, people wanted to live cool places where you could see, like, photographs of, like, Portland, Austin, you know, what have you. So... Uh, people realized that they could, like, hike up rents because they were so, like, Instagrammable. But then again, this is a very, very hot take. You know what's interesting, though? I think there is something to that because historically people gravitated towards city centers because of jobs. Like, I moved from Fresno to San Francisco because San Francisco had the college that I needed to go to, right? There weren't a lot of college options. And then I moved from San Francisco to Los Angeles because Los Angeles had the jobs in my industry. So historically, I think people's migrations were usually to city centers because of 
jobs, employment opportunities. Mine but, was purely aesthetic. But, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Places like Austin and Portland didn't necessarily have that huge career kind of hub. So I think you're right. I think there are some smaller cities that people move to for aesthetic reasons or social reasons rather than career-based reasons. And I think that is probably relatively new. Yeah, because I was sick of Denver. Like, in Portland, I'm like, I can, like, go to shows. I have friends there. I can get a cool job. Like, you know, I But can... not necessarily a good job. Just not like a, a good cool job, job. A cool job. A cooler right. job than I could get in Denver. Right. Like, you're working at a cool store or a cool coffee shop or a cool bar. It's, like, still service industry, but, like, just a little more hip. And, like, a lot of, like, my friends who are really cool lived there. So right. it's just, like... There was kind of like in 2007, 2008, there was kind of an exodus from Denver. We had that in Fresno, too. There was an exodus at one point from Fresno to Portland. And a lot of people from Fresno that I grew up with live in Portland still. Well, because people were like, it's cheap. Like, there's a bunch of, like, alternative stuff to do. Yeah. Honestly, like... When I went back to, when we, well, back to, when I visited Fresno, I was like, this reminds me of, like, Portland in, like, 2007. Yeah, Fresno's very, very cool. Um, so but, it's yeah. Like, it's kind of like where people moved, where it was like, you could basically be an artist for cheap. Because you could get a, like, my rent was $300 a month. So I only had to really work part-time, and then I was in a band. Oh, I could see that. Yeah, it was like a career hub for arts. That makes more sense. Yeah, Maybe like, it's less aesthetic and it's more about that, a place where you could actually still afford to be an artist. That's why I think so many people from L.A. are moving out to Palm Desert, Joshua Tree yeah, area. It's totally. because you can buy a house for super cheap. You know, there's like artists out there and you can you can make art and live pretty cheaply out there. Right. I mean, I don't know about any more, but for a while you could. Yeah. Um, that is interesting, though, that, like, yeah, for reference, like, when I think about, like, my $250 a month of student loan payments, it relatively to my income and to the cost of other things now in the year, like, 2023 doesn't seem like that much money. But when I was first starting to pay them back, it was the year 2009. And in 2009, $250 was a lot of money to me, one, because my income was lower, and two, proportionally to my other expenses because just things were things were cheaper in 2009. So $250 felt like a, a lot more to me then. And it it was, it was, yeah, having student loan payments for many years of my life was a major source of financial stress. And I remember feeling like weird about it because it was stressful to me, but I also felt like I couldn't talk to other people about it because everybody I knew had so much more student loan debt than me. I know people who literally like had student debt like so high that their parents took out a second mortgage so they could pay off the student loans because the interest was so high. Yeah. And then the kid paid back their parents instead of the lender because their student loans were like 900 bucks. Yes. Yeah. So so my student loans were relatively cheap. I do remember thinking that. Uh, and I went to community college for two years first, and that was obviously between 5 to $10 per credit at the time, so I just paid that as I went. Now I think community college is free for California residents, so it would have been even cheaper if I'd gone today. Um, then I transferred to the four-year school to finish my bachelor's degree, and that's where I had to take out $30,774.81 total in student loans. And that came between 2006, 2007, and 2008 when I ultimately graduated, so I kind of went started halfway in the middle of 2006 and then graduated in the middle of 2008. And I remember thinking at the time that I did really well because most of my friends at the same school as me had over $100,000 in student loan debt when they graduated. Yeah. 
Um, I also, to get my student loans down, I worked full-time while attending college full-time, which was obviously pretty rare. And I just used all of my money from working to pay for my living expenses. So I didn't take out a single penny for living expenses. Uh, a lot of my friends did, though. It's pretty hard. Oh, I took out because um, there was no place I could afford to live while going to school. Plus, like, I feel like um, I actually it actually was kind of worth my while to take out loans for living expenses because I lived on campus, which was cheaper. But because I didn't have to work full time, I just worked part time in the library. I graduated early. Yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, I definitely at our school living in dorms was more expensive than renting your own place. Mm. So the dorms were like twelve hundred dollars a month. But my first apartment, I got my room for six hundred dollars a month. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then another thing too, is that I never had to retake a class, but a lot of kids at my school had to retake classes multiple times because it was a really hard curriculum. And of course, every time you fail a class, you have to retake it. You pay to take the class again. Oh yeah. I never had to do that. Thank goodness. Yeah. So I feel like I got lucky with that, but you know, it was a lot of work to get out with just $30,000 of debt for this degree. Um, yeah, most of my friends, same degree, hun- over $100,000. We're talking like Ivy League level student loans Whoa. for my degree, which, um, you know, I went to a private for-profit art school for fashion design. Um, yeah, and then obviously at the time that I took out the loans, I understood that I'd be paying interest on them, but I didn't really have a reference point for what the interest was, how much it was, how it worked. Like, Kenna, do you know how interest rates are set up for student loans? No fucking clue. Yeah, okay. Well, they're based on the interest rates that are set up by the Fed, right, which is appointed by Congress. So this congressionally appointed Fed comes up with the interest rates, which change regularly in order to try to control against inflation nationally. So when I took out my student loan starting in 2006, interest rates were set around 5%. And that was considered pretty good at the time. But I didn't have any credit history, really, because I was a teenager, and nobody was able to co-sign all my student loans. Like, it was just me. Like, I had to enter a lottery for the school to be my co-signer to even get approved. Um, But yeah, my interest rate was worse than 5%, obviously, because I was a subprime borrower. So it was 6.8% for all my loans except for one. And every adult in the room was telling me, like, this is a low interest rate. Interest rates are low right now. You're doing great. And after college, you're going to be so rich because you're going to have such a good job. You're not even going to notice. And they kept quoting this statistic at me. Uh, like college graduates earn $500,000 more in their lifetime. So this 30K, it's going to feel like nothing compared to half a million dollars. But in reality, you know, I was never just going to have to pay back $30,000. I was going to have to pay back $30,000 plus interest because, duh, that's how loans work. And I didn't really understand how interest worked or how much money it would end up being because I was a teenager with virtually no financial background or financial experience whatsoever and nobody to guide me through this. So obviously it's been 18 years since I took out my first student loan. And in that time, I have paid off $23,241.20 off of my principal balance. And I've paid off an additional $17,088.45 in interest for a grand total of over 40K paid towards these things. You know, I've already paid around 10K more than I took out, but my remaining balance owed is still a little over 8,000 bucks. Wow. Yeah, and this is with a pretty good interest rate. Yeah, I feel like I actually had a really low interest rate. Really? Because we went to college around the same time. I think I went to college a year earlier, and my parents co-signed. Oh, so you got a better one because they had a better credit history. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I think mine was like 4% or something crazy. Yeah, that's probably better. Um, but yeah, those good jobs they promised me when I signed up for college, right? They're like, you're going to be making so much money. Who oh, cares? Because I graduated in 2007. Yeah. This was, 
a year before the financial crisis. They're like, this is the best job market ever. It really was. In 2007, it really was. Like, they're, they were, like, at this point, like, they were basically, like, you know, like, that phrase, like, it's the end of history. Like, we made it. Yeah. Like, everyone's going to have jobs in America. It's going to be, like, the 90s forever. Yeah. Well, like, no one could have even comprehended, like, the recession that was coming. No. And I graduated in early 2009. So I graduated into the thick of the recession, wow. just into super fucked mode. Uh, and I think we all kind of know how that worked out for millennials. Um, <laughs> we don't We don't have any, nothing happened to us. Yeah, yeah. We did a whole episode about this, actually. Uh, I, I did was a, gone. You were gone. I, I, I did a whole episode about the Great Recession. If you want to listen to it, uh, it's called Crash Into Me. Um, but yeah, those of us who graduated into the Great Recession, the older millennials, we are still to this day recovering from that. Some people call us the lost generation for wealth accumulation because of it. Oh, yeah, I believe that. I mean, even though I graduated into a job, it was like an entry level job. So even that's pretty lucky at the time. Oh, uh, when I got a job at like a plumbing company um, and I only got the job because I knew CAD and a hundred other people interviewed or yeah. like applied. By uh, 2016, though, trying to recover from this, our wealth levels were still, as older millennials, 34% what they below what they should have been if the Great Recession ever happened. Yeah, I just think about, like, literally all of my 20s was just being, like, so, so, so broke. Yeah, yeah, mine too. And all of this happened to us because the recession led to this horrible job market, which made it impossible for people just graduated from college to find entry-level jobs and get our find our footing kind of on the solid career path. Because when I started looking for entry-level jobs, everything was so fucked that people with 10 years of experience were applying to work for minimum wage in, in fashion design. And so they're not going to hire me fresh out of college. They're going to hire the person with 10 years of experience who's so desperate that they'll work for 10 bucks an hour. Yeah, I mean, I was just like an admin assistant for years. Right. And so, this is like me with like a BA, like I had all this like graphic design you know like mm-hmm. to me i actually was like i was more meant to work for like a like a pr company. it's funny because i actually interviewed at like the biggest advertising agent in portland and they had i want to say like 25 people in a group interview yeah and one of the people this was not for this was for an admin assistant right at the advertising agency and one of the person who was applying was like, oh, yeah, I just spent my summer doing like, like straight up. It was like something like ridiculous where it's like I run a surf camp for orphans. Wow. And I was like, oh, all these people are like, like Ivy Lee, like have like Ivy Lee pedigree or and like it's for an administration assistant. Like it right. was like we were interviewing to go, you know, like when people talk about like. I got to get, you know, my kid into Harvard. So yes. they're taking rowing classes and SAT and they volunteer at the uh, company that helps uh, children learn how to climb mountains. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's totally true. It was just so competitive. And and even you getting a job not in your field, not based on your skill set, that would be considered underemployment. And you would have felt lucky to have that job. That's how I felt during the recession. I worked as a salesperson uh, for a photographer and that was not related to fashion design but I felt lucky to have that job because so many of my friends had no job at all I was grateful to be underemployed I mean I was really lucky because I had the admin assistant job and then in my spare time I 
thrifted. Yeah. And that's how I was able to, like, afford my rent. Right. And, like, I just do, and I also just do not thrive well in an office environment. With it's no, hard. With, I would say, uh, like, boomers. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so I was thinking about all of this. And, you know, we already did an episode about the Great Recession, but I was just thinking that a great episode for today uh, would be all about student loan debt in the United States and around the world. Yeah, I mean, like, it's something that I thought about constantly for many years. Right. Okay, so, Kenna, if you had to guess, what do you think the average federal student loan debt is per borrow in the USA today? This is just federal student loan debts. Federal? I don't know. That's what we have the best records for. Uh, 20K? Uh, well, in 2021, it was $39,000 per person. Just a Whoa. little under 40K. Over 39, under 40. And back when when I graduated college in 2009, it was more like $24,000 per person. Uh, so by that standard, my student loan debt that I felt, <laughs> fork dropped her yak chew, <laughs> that I felt was so good, um, that was actually still a little higher than the na- national average. But, you know, I did attend a private art school in San Francisco, which I believe at the time was the most expensive city in the U.S. to live in that year. So, you know, for the location, I do think I did pretty well, relatively speaking. But when we look at these numbers, we really get a sense of just how much student loan debt has increased over our lifetime, our adulthood alone. Um, Like for baby boomers who graduated college in 1976 to 1977, this comparison to millennials and Gen Z is even more extreme now. So they had an average student loan debt of $10,428. And that's not just for one year. That's for their entire four-year degree. And that is not in 1970s money. That is in today money. That's adjusted for inflation. Yeah. My mom, through college, worked a part-time job and was able to pay for her college and her apartment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the actual amount of money not adjusted for inflation was like 2400 bucks basically for the whole movie is what they were paying. So, yeah. Whoa. It, it, it would be like us today paying $10,000 for a four-year degree. Whoa. Right, right, right. And that's not... You know, that's just the student loan debt part of it, obviously, but still pr- pretty low, pretty manageable. And I think when we talk about historical money figures, sometimes it gets a little bit hard to comprehend. Um, But basically, it would be like college students today paying a quarter of what they do for a college education on the same income and standard of life and quality of life. Yeah, I couldn't imagine going back to school now because I'd be like, I couldn't, there's no way I could afford it. Right. Because I, and like, I also just like cannot work full-time and go to school that is like a recipe for me getting sick yeah i think the way to think about it for me is if my student loans are 250 dollars now if i was paying relative to the cost of living now what baby boomers did for college my student loan payments would be around 60 bucks a month whoa that's just like so much you get rid of some subscriptions yeah exactly and that kind of makes sense when boomers are just like well, the avocado toast is the problem. And you're like, yeah, my student loans aren't, they're not the, they're not the price of six avocado toasts. Like, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> that's not, that's not how this is working. Um, but it is really interesting. And that means, obviously, college today is 400% the price for Gen Z as it was for their baby boomer grandparents. Yeah. yeah and, you know, for you and me, Kenna, if we were getting those baby boomer rates for a college degree, yeah, our expenses would be half of what they were, right? Because that's the price for for kids today graduating from college, for even us, though, when we graduated, it would have been the difference between $10,000 average student loan debt and 24 ish thousand student loan debt. 
So, Kenna, how do you think your life would be different today if you'd got a 56% discount on your college costs? I would have had so much less stress in my life. And I probably could have, like, saved more at the time. This was pre-Obamacare. I probably could have had health insurance. Oh, yeah. Before Obamacare, nobody I knew had health insurance. Oh, you were just Fuck. Yeah, I would go stand in line at free clinics um, all the time. And it'd be like a whole day. You'd have to take like a whole day off work if you wanted to go to a free clinic. And I couldn't, I wasn't even, like, I couldn't go to a free clinic because you, like, it was so, because so many people didn't have insurance. Like, you just, like, if you made over a certain amount, and that certain amount was like, literally, do you make over $100? It was like something like yeah. ridiculously low. They were basically like, if you are not, like, literally homeless, you cannot get Healthcare. I think the only reason I went to so many free clinics is because San Francisco had a real culture of it. So there were a lot of free clinics in San Francisco at the time. And also, I would literally just go to Planned Parenthood for my normal healthcare because it was the only thing I knew. Oh, that's the only place that I went to for, for um, like, because, if, like, that's the only doctor I went to was Planned yeah. Parenthood. Because, like, for, I feel like, not to be TMI, for, like, I feel like... Like, once a year, I would get just a random UTI that was oh, gnarly. Yeah. Well, I even got to the point where I would go, if I had strep throat, I'd be like, I don't know who I can go to to get antibiotics for this. So I would just go to Planned Parenthood, and I'd be like, I'm here because I think I have strep throat. And they would treat me, and they would give me an antibiotic prescription. You know, um, that is, they were actually, like, they had a new CEO, like, a couple years back, who mm-hmm. was, like, they were trying to, like, go away from, like, reproductive care to just, like, that. And yeah. I'm like... Well, can't you do both? <laughs> yeah, I went there for both. I mean, I might have the story wrong, but, like, that was, like, one thing that they were trying to focus on. But it was, like, honestly, I mean, they're already there. They might yeah. as well. Um, yeah, I know for me, if I got a 56% discount on my college tuition, my 30K of student loan debt would have been more like 13200 total. And that shit would have been paid off years ago, even with the 8.8% interest rates of 1976 compared to the 6.8 interest rates I took out. So you can see why it's pretty frustrating hearing these numbers for young people to try to explain to baby boomers how the expenses we're contending with today are very different than the ones boomers dealt with. And if you're Gen Z compared to millennials, it's even worse for Gen Z than it was for us. And at a political level, this stuff's important to realize because 54% of congressional representatives in the U.S. are baby boomers or older. So they're just so disconnected from the financial reality of what most young people are contending with. Well, also, like, the difference in student loan prices means a difference in your quality of life as a young person because like i know people who lived with their parents for years and years because of their student imagine if you didn't have to live with your parents right away i mean some people choose to because they get along with their parents it'd be nice to have a choice though but it would be nice to have a choice i mean like you know i i think some people really need to get out of their parents house and can't right that's true some people feel really stuck if i had to live this is like not me being hyperbolic. If I was in a financial position where I had to live with my mother, uh, you know, I lied about my age so that I could move out of my mother's house as a minor. I think my mother and I literally would have murdered each other. Like, and that's not me being hyperbolic. I think it would have ended in death for at least one of us and potentially both of us. It was a very volatile living situation. It was, it was really bad. And just thinking about people who are stuck you know in in living situations with family members that might be harmful or abusive and they don't have the option of getting away it's really fucking tragic and i think this whole idea of young people not having uh the ability to to comfortably live a life of independence if they choose to if they want to obviously not everybody wants that and that's totally fine but i think that has these really wide-reaching kind of effects that we don't consider 
Yeah, like on like in like I think too. Like I wonder how, how this correlates with like you know housing prices getting so high because the the housing prices in just my adult life the the change has been dramatic. Yeah. I remember in the year two thousand four. You could rent a studio apartment in Denver for $400. Yes. Yeah. No, housing prices are getting, are, are increasing exponentially too. And that's the thing. It's like wages have stagnated, but the cost of everything just keeps going higher, higher, especially medical care, housing costs, and college. Those are the three things that just keep getting disproportionately higher to these unsustainable levels. Yeah. And it's like, you can't, okay. So like society has this expectation, you know, not saying it's good. I'm just saying. Society has this expectation, you know, you graduate high school, you go to college, you get a car, you get a house, you get a job, you start a family, nuclear family, you know, and you do all this stuff to be like, you know, I'm using air quotes, like functioning member of society. So when you realistically cannot do those things until you're in your 30s, 40s, maybe, like, that's like kind of a psychological toll, even if you're alternative and are just like, fuck it. Like yeah. having society around you being like, you're like being like, mm, it seems kind of like you're a loser to me where it's like, yeah. this is not my, like, and it's hard to like for, you know, I'm just saying for me, for example, to not even like internalize that a little bit, you know, when I was like, you know, 27 being like, dude, I can't, I don't even have a savings account right now. Right. Yeah. I don't, my I bills are so high. I didn't have a savings account until I was like 28. And when I started saving, I was saving $5 a month at first. And then I was like, a couple months later, I was like, I could save five dollars a week. It was literally twenty dollars a but week. But that's is what I to me, it's like it's or not a month. A, I mean, yeah. it's not a morality judgment. No, you know, it's, it's not. You can't like don't don't like diss your friends for not having a savings. No, it's hard. Save. It's like, really hard. It's really hard in our society, and it's like just even like the subconscious toll it takes on people is really fucked up. Like, it is. imagine how many people have like really had like severely bad things happen in their life because they can't complete this step of society and they internalize it. Right. Well, okay, so to think about why specifically college uh, student loan debt has spiraled out of control and become so huge, we have to kind of get to the source. Like, so to understand this massive uptick in the average amount of student loans over the past 40 years that people graduate with, the source of this is actually just the rapidly rising cost of college tuition on the whole. So over the past 20 years alone, the price of a college degree has gone up more than any other good or service besides hospital care. Wow. Yeah. So this is pretty major. College tuition has gone up more than uh, medical services in general, child care, and housing, all of which have also risen exponentially beyond, uh, like, to totally unprecedented levels. And even taking into account financial aid like grants and scholarships, the net price of a degree from a public four-year college has still more than doubled since the year 2000 alone. Whoa. Yes. So, Kenna, if you had to guess which country has the highest college tuition cost of any large developed nation in the world, what would you guess? USA. USA. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's the good old United States. It's a, it's a specifically American issue we're contending with, like so many dystopian specifically American issues. So there's this economist, Beth Akers, from the Manhattan Institute, and she sought to figure out exactly why college prices have been so rapidly accelerating in the United States. 
So there are reasons people usually cite for why they think college is getting more expensive. And these things are kind of thrown out like they're proven, but they're actually not. They're just like kind of talking points. Uh, one is over large administrative costs, like administration. They're like, oh, they're just like paying too much to administer things. Like this could be streamlined. That one there is some evidence for like things are just complicated and muddled and not streamlined very well from the administrative end. Um, people also are like, well, we're building too many campus amenities. That one, there's not like a ton of evidence to support that. Another one people cite is that professors are making too much money, which if you've ever met a professor, is hilarious. Like, like maybe like tenured prof- celebrity oh. professors. Okay, so the average pay for a tenured professor as of 2023, $93,000 a year. What the fuck? Yeah. Why are they making it seem like professors are making like fucking like... 600k i have no idea i mean it is a decent salary don't get me wrong but it's not a six-figure salary and i definitely knew like asshole sales people at clothing companies i worked for who made like three times that and did nothing it's wild like i think that like people yeah it's it's so funny that sometimes these like quote-unquote dream careers you make really shitty money. I mean, I don't know. I would be thrilled to make ninety three thousand. Oh, I would be thrilled year. to make ninety three. It's more than we make. We make seventy three thousand dollars a year. Like, but it's still, it's not, it's not like you would think. Like, well, this is responsible for the destruction of the education system in the United States. The fact that this tenured professor who's been working for over a decade at this school makes ninety three thousand dollars. Well, yeah, because you can make six figures doing like. Sales. Yeah, you can make six, most salespeople who are assholes that I hate. Or make like six weird, weird corporate managers. Yeah, right. Like it's not. Like, there are a lot of people making six-figure salaries. Six-figures. Right. Yeah. So you know, I don't think that these professors are getting dramatically overpaid, and that's the issue. Um, and uh, some people even say that the ease of accessing subsidized student loans is responsible for college getting more expensive. Blame and, the poor. Yeah. Well, guess guess. <laughs> I can't even tell you who came up with this idea. This is a theory put out by a Reagan education secretary named William J. Bennett. And literally, he tried to blame rising tuition costs on government aid. So really shocking. Very, oh my God, I can't believe a Reagan guy would try to say government spending made everything expensive. It's like, obviously, the whole Reagan platform is like, see how government spending is ruining everything and we should just privatize everything and give poor people nothing? Okay, so this guy has this theory, and sometimes people just repeat this like it's true, but it's like nothing has proven that this is true. This is just some weird guy with a political agenda just saying shit, but whatever. So Akers thought all of these explanations seemed a little weak. She's like not buying any of those. So she says, look, according to capitalism, competition is theoretically supposed to bring the cost of goods down over time, not up right? This is something we've seen happen in the United States with technology. Like, if you ever wonder why your baby boomer parents or grandparents think that televisions are really expensive? Have you encountered this? Yes. Like, I feel like my parents only buy a new TV, like, every 30. Right. Well, that's because in today's money, a large color TV in the 1960s would have cost you $2,500. Whoa. Yeah. But Today, now you can get a 55-inch flat-screen TV for 248 bucks at Walmart. So it was like a tenth the price relative to income that it used to be. And and that's what Acres was like. Usually, as we do things, we get more efficient at them. We get better. And the costs of things should be getting cheaper over time, not more expensive. Unless you have, you know, just like some greedy CEOs at the top of a company taking a bunch of money. But, you know, she's like, something, just something weird is going on here. 
So American workers, we all know, are becoming more efficient and productive every year. Like American productivity of workers is like through the roof, right? USA. <laughs> yeah. USA. <laughs> so she's like, at American colleges then, if everybody's more productive with the aid of technology and all this stuff, the cost of things should be coming down pro- proportional to our incomes, not up. So she's like, why isn't this happening? And she came up with four explanations, which all sound really rational. And she did research on these ideas. So the first one is that students overestimate the return on their degree. And this leads them to overvalue it, meaning they're willing to pay more for it. And this definitely happened to me. I thought I would be earning six figures within a few years of graduating, mostly because the recruiters at my college told me I would be and showed me like charts and graphs seeming to prove it. Um, But yeah, like Kenna, did you have this idea going to college that your college education would just like magically lead to a good job that paid you well forever? Yeah, they were like, you will get a job. And then they were like, when I graduated, they're like, well, who's your job counselor? Where are you interning at? I was like, I don't know. They were like, someone was supposed to be assigned to you. And it never happened. Yeah. So I think that this makes sense. I think a lot of students, myself included, overestimate what this degree is going to do for your life. And You know, a lot of us grow up thinking, like, if I could just get a college degree, my future will fall into place. So that means that when somebody's like, "You well, it's going to cost you 40 grand a year instead of 20 grand a year. You're like, who cares? I need it so that I can have a good life. Yeah. And also, like, what was drilled into me, because I went to a small liberal arts college, was like, to be a good, upstanding citizen, you need to know, like, the things you learn in college, like, philosophy oh it's like like, a moralizing thing well also like you it was also kind of like a networking thing because greek life was really big on my campus i was like a vampire i was like yeah and like i was not i was a fucking i was the weirdest person in my entire school this was like george bush era like ever i feel like literally everybody there was like a republican except for me (laughs) yeah and it was before the the whole green thing happened in colorado when everyone started smoking weed this was pre-green rush yeah like people do not realize how like colorado is like a cowboy state like you know it's it's very different but it's like i got drilled in where it's just like you need this to be an upstanding member of society. You need to go to college to learn how to do any job. And if you have a BA, anyone will hire you. I could have been an admin assistant without the fucking BA. Yes, exactly. Same. <laughs> um, so the second reason that she came up with from doing research is that colleges aren't necessarily transparent about their true prices. So people don't really know how much they're signing up to take on. And I felt this explanation so hardcore because I always joked that signing up for college felt a lot like being sold a used car. It's like the numbers are very like, what do you feel like you can pay? Let's see what we can do. What about this? What's let's knock. It was like you were wheeling and dealing for your college degree. And I remember being like, what the fuck is happening? And I, I actually remember sitting down and being like, how much will this cost? And they were like, let's find out. It depends. Are your parents helping you? What about this? Do you qualify for this? Let's do this. And I did get a lot of scholarships and grants that they, the financial aid department helped walk me through. But I just remember being like, why can nobody give me uh, just a solid answer about how fucking expensive this college degree is? And also the first quote they gave me included all of these bullshit amounts for living expenses that I'm like, what, what is this, a food budget? You just arbitrarily made up a food budget and threw it into my student loan package? Like, none of this is founded in reality. It's just they're kind of making things up as they go and seeing what they can get away with. Well, plus, like, when you're 17, 18, when 19, you're most yeah. likely a teenager. I was a teenager, for you sure. You don't get this stuff. And for me, I just relied on my parents to know better. Well, yeah, and know? I just did it on my own. I think my mom came up to see my school once with me, and I was like, this is the school I want to go to. And she was like, okay, I'll come look with you. 
Uh, and we were together for a day, remarkably didn't murder each other. Yay! Um, but, you know, that was it. She didn't do it. She didn't meet with the financial aid people. She was just like, cool, well, good just, seeing you, bye. I think everyone was like, you'll figure it out. You'll have a job. Right. Everyone did just kind of assume everything would fall into place. Um, yeah, the third thing she came up with is she's like, you know, there aren't enough institutions operating within a regional market for us to even develop competition. Uh, and I kind of experienced this one, too. Like, you know, I lived in... Fresno. I wanted to go to fashion design school in California. That's my state. I get in-state tuition. I get a discount. Uh, in LA, there were a few fashion design schools. In San Francisco, there were actually more, which I wouldn't expect. Um, but for the type of fashion design I wanted to do, I wanted to be more like a trade school. I didn't want to do like high art. I didn't want to do textile design. I wanted to learn a trade skill, how to industrially manufacture clothing and be a corporate designer because I thought that was a better paying job. There were only two schools in San Francisco who did that, and one only offered an associate's program, and the uh, graduation rate was something like 10%. Everybody dropped out because it was a terrible school. So really, if I wanted to do it, there was only one place that even offered a a four-year degree in it. I didn't have many options. This was the one option that existed in the area I was in, and it was a private for-profit school that later, after I graduated, it lost its accreditation and everybody was doing that. But if for what I wanted, that was the only school that existed. There wasn't enough competition in the area. So I totally felt that one too. And then the last one she came up with is that there are just really uh, a lot of significant barriers for anybody who wants to open a new college. Like it's hard if you're like, well, I want to compete. I'm going to open a new college. It's kind of hard to do. And the schools that do it, you know, under capitalism usually are for-profit models. And they're usually really scammy. So if somebody just earnestly wants to start a new school, you know, it's it's very difficult for them to kind of pass the test and get their accreditation and do all these things. Yeah, I would like to me, if I saw a new school popping up, I'd either be like, it's a scam or it's a cult. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like my school, when I went, it was accredited. And I would say actually that I got a better education than anybody else I, I've met who went to fashion school because it was very industrially focused. It was a trade school. And so I don't, you know, the quality of my education in a lot of ways was very practical and I appreciate that. But later the whole school system, not my department, that was just my department, right? That's because I had some good teachers. They did, they lost their accreditation and the school lost its reputation. So that was my experience. And meanwhile, my friend went, was getting a master's from a totally different uh, type of art school in San Francisco. One that was very like, hippie dreamy fine arts focused the opposite 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 and that school lost its accreditation while he was attending for his master's and fortunately he got his phd at stanford stanford knew about the school and they were like no no we just like that school that school is very hippie hippie dreamy it, we know it lost its accreditation while you were wrapping up but we're still going to honor your master's wow yeah so it is very it's the accreditation process is complicated and hard for all sorts of different types of schools um yeah, so starting off, the first point when Akers was talking about this idea about how lots of students think a college degree is a golden ticket to the middle class, this one I think resonated the most with me. I would argue actually a lot of parents think this way too. My parents for sure. Yeah, and that's why so many parents encourage their kids to attend college right away after high school no matter what. They're just like, pick something, just go to college, get your degree, it doesn't matter. And I think we know young people like this even at our work whose parents have done that with them. And these young people are like, I don't think college is right for me. This is not going to translate into a job. Anything that will get me a good job, I'm not going to be able to complete or want to do. And me going to college for my interests, it's just going to be a waste of money. Like, I'm good at art. Me getting an art degree isn't going to help me get a job, you know? 
I already have a job. Right, I already have a job. Like, people's parents don't understand this. And this really backfires, I think. Well-intentioned parents wanting what's best for their kids will accidentally steer them in a direction that's financially bad for them. And when I was in college, so many of my classmates were only there because their parents forced them to get a degree after high school. Their parents were just like, I don't care what it is. You're going to college. And that was it. There was no discussion. So these kids didn't really know what they wanted to do with their lives. They were like, I have no clue. Fashion sounds fun and easy. So they signed up for these fashion design degrees at my school. But the thing about fashion design is that it's not actually that easy. I was going to be like, it's not easy. Like, you kind of have to know how things are put together. And, like, if you... It, you have to kind of learn, like, spatial awareness, if that makes any sense. No, it does. It's very technical. It's very math-oriented. And it's a lot like miniature blueprint making. Because Which you, I, yeah, I know how to do from, because I I did drafting. Yeah, and you now <laughs> obviously work as a designer at the same, at the, at the company we both work at. And you know, even things being a half an inch off, a few millimeters off, can totally fuck up garment. So because my school, the teachers were really gnarly. Um, everything was really intense. And I actually developed this conspiracy theory. I'm like, I think they're trying to make the curriculum so difficult to pass that everyone fails and has to repay to take the classes to like drive up the money that they're getting i think that was the scam because remember i said the education was really good but it was so impossible it was impossible to get an a in a class it was almost impossible to pass a class and i was a straight a student i was good at school and i came into this and was just like how the fuck am i supposed to do this because it was so difficult so what would happen is you'd make a pattern right and you'd be like half a millimeter off on something and the teacher would be like rip it up and start again you did it wrong. It's half a millimeter off. And you're like, you can't, what, I can't even see half a millimeter on the ruler. And she's like, really? I can. Rip it up and start again. And you would have to rip up your pattern and start over. Like, it was very, very difficult and very, very technical. So a lot of these kids were like, I thought fashion design was supposed to be fun and easy would get thrown in this pattern making class and be like, I'm having a nervous breakdown and I'm not good at math. And I remember this one girl talking to the instructor and the instructor's like, okay, now you're going to bring this curve out you know, half an inch. And I remember this girl being like, how do I know what half an inch is? And the instructor's like, you look on your ruler at half an inch. And she's like, how does, what, what, how do I know what half an inch is? And the instructor was just like, are you asking me how a ruler works? And the girl was like, yes, I don't know how a ruler works. And she was just like, I don't want to be doing this. I'm not good at math. The ruler's stressing me out. I'm flipping out. She's like, I just, I just, my mom made me choose a degree and I didn't know what to do and I thought this would be fun. And you saw these kids really, really struggling and I felt so fucking bad for them because they would, they would drop out. They couldn't complete the program. It was too stressful. But by the time they dropped out, a lot of times they'd have over $100,000 in student loan debt and no degree to go along with it. So really, I think that this was really common. Parents push kids to just go to college. It doesn't matter what it is. And kids make what they think is the best decision for them based on their interests, not having an understanding of what the degree actually entails, what the job actually would be. And yeah, no shit. Sometimes teenagers who don't know how things work will choose wrong. And it's a lot of pressure and it ends up in this really bad position for them. I don't know if I would make the decision right even now. I mean, yeah, now I don't even know if I made the decision right. And it's really, really difficult. Um, And most of these kids, you know, they told their parents from the jump that they didn't feel ready to go to college. They were like, I don't I don't know what I want to go for. I think I want to take some years off or I just want to work at the mall until I figure my life out. But their parents thought that any college degree meant a better future. So they would strong arm their kids into just enrolling. 
Even if you don't know, just enroll. Just pick something. Just go. And this idea that every single degree is super valuable to your future, that pushes up how much students and parents are willing to pay for a college education. Yeah, I also think um, another reason is the college experience. Oh, true. Like, you know, the traditional college experience. You go to a school, you meet friends. Like, that's it's funny because I feel like there's this meme going around where, like, college is the only walkable city you'll live in in your life. Yeah. You know, like, college for many people is the best time of their lives. Like, you can walk outside your apartment, you get food, all your friends are there, you can go to the library, there's parties going on, there's meetings, there's stuff to do. Like, it's kind of like, I mean, it really is, like, socialized in the way that I mean, like, socialism. Yeah. Because it's like... You, a lot of time, like, your food is built into your tuition. You go to the cafeteria. You get stuff paid for. You have, like, it's, or, like, that's the same reason why people, like, go to church or join community organizations, you know? If you are in Greek society, and I mean, like, not Greek is in the country. I mean, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, like... a sorority, fraternity, whatnot. Like, that's how you make connections. That's how you meet people. A lot of people go to these schools in other cities. They don't know anybody. That's how you meet people. People, you know, I am not one of these people because I am not. I am, like, a weird alternative person. At yeah. A, like, a conservative college. But, like, I know, like, my, my sister, like, some of her best friends are still are from college yeah to um asu the party the party school yeah yeah, that was one of the reasons a lot of people went to asu was to party right 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 right. to have that young you know that's also an experience in our society that is very valued like you see it in like you know movies and stuff like right you go to college you party you make some decisions maybe you kiss a girl yeah no it's totally true i think that is a big selling point for it um I think the going back to the idea that like there's this myth that like every degree is so valuable to your future that you should just do it no matter what the cost. There's actually some really interesting statistics about this. Um, like in reality, for most majors, six percent of college graduates age twenty two to twenty seven are unemployed after graduating. Wow, that's a yeah. big amount. Uh, yeah, that means actually that the unemployment rate for college graduates with at least a bachelor's degree for most majors is higher than that compared to the overall workforce. So according to Forbes, statistics show that the unemployment rate for recent college graduates has been steadily moving upward, while the general unemployment rate for all other workers has been rapidly declining over the last 10 years. So on top of that, the underemployment rate, which is what we talked about, like where I graduated from college with a fashion design degree and I was doing sales at a photo lab, or you graduated with, uh, what was your degree in again? Digital media studies and I double majored in journalism. Right. So you've got this journalism and digital media studies well, degree. And, and graphic design. And what I did web design. I right. did PR. You know, so that's like digital media. Yeah. Yeah. And then stuff. you ended up working as an administrative assistant. Yes. So we would have been underemployed. And that refers to people accepting jobs lower than their academic or experience level. And that, that underemployment rate, that's at an all-time high. And that means that a lot of college graduates who are employed, not part of that 6% number, they're working places like the gig economy or temp work or low-end positions that have nothing to do with their degrees like we did. Or like some people I know like interned and got paid nothing. Right. So the return on investment for your college degree 
it varies hugely based on what degree you get. As much as I hate to see it, say it, the Republicans who chastise young people for getting useless degrees and things like left-handed puppetry, they're kind of right. Because getting a degree in liberal arts, media, performing arts, criminal justice, anthropology, and philosophy, those all face an unemployment rate of over 6% in 2019 uh, compared to the general public unemployment rate, which was 3.6%. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it's not that those those kids are to blame. It's not like it's anyone's fault for getting a liberal arts degree, right? We grew up in a country where stagnating wages and cultural sentiments convinced us all that any college degree would be a step in the direction towards financial stability that would fix our financial problems. And if you happen to be a person who is most skilled in the liberal arts, it would make sense that you would want to get a degree in a field that best suited your skill set where you think you'd have the best chance of thriving. Yeah, and this is, to me, it's not a knock against the liberal arts. We actually need people. We need sociologists and anthropologists yes. and like we need philosophers and we we those actually to me those are actually more important jobs in society they're very than, important than, jobs than the bfas and the business ones wait bfa that's fine arts that's yeah, not that's fine i was thinking what's what's the bachelor's in science like what's bs the, bs I, yeah that's funny. i mean i think they're all important i think all of the jobs that we need to make society function are super super important and it's not anybody's fault for getting that degree that those positions don't pay well and those degrees aren't valued for what they are and and the reality is that college degrees in these fields though they are seldom financially worthwhile at all and more people do need to be talking about that so potential students can make educated decisions about whether or not the expense associated with getting those degrees is worth it to them. Yeah, because, you know, like some of those, you know, if you want to make a degree, let's say in sociology, like, ac- you know, academia is probably your best bet or right. writing a book, you know. Right. Um, and Forbes summed up this issue pretty well. They said universities are not aligning their curriculum with the needs of today's job market. They are collecting large tuition payments and shortchanging the students by not informing them of the risks inherent with pursuing some majors. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. Like, this is a capitalism issue here in so many ways, obviously, yeah. right? Like, first of all, the colleges are selling you a degree. That's what they're doing. They're selling you a degree. Second of all, like you said, Kenna, society cannot function without philosophers and liberal arts experts. But people skilled in those fields are dramatically undervalued in our current system because it's harder to extract profit from them. Mm-hmm. Right? So ideally, you should be able to go get a college degree in philosophy and be viewed as a valuable contributing member of society who helps conceptualize effective ways to structure everything from the criminal justice system to our ethical and moral framework. And all of this should be able to be done at an affordable or outright free kind of institution. Yeah, my hot take is actually we need more philosophy majors because... I think all the, where, like, AI is going, where all this stuff, like, no one's thinking about the morality or ethics of anything or where shit might end up. Like, no one's thinking about, like, like, everyone's just kind of doing shit willy-nilly. Right. There's no guiding moral framework or moral compass for us culturally to attach to. I mean, not that we need, like, an elevate. I mean, that's a whole other episode of, like, but, you know, I'm saying, like, I actually think those jobs are important. There needs to be someone to be like, hey, maybe you should think about the ethical, moral, social implications of this robot. Yeah, I mean, and that can be true for every single industry. I mean, yeah, these are valuable things to have an education in. But as long as we exist in capitalism and they're not financially, like, rewarding to get the degrees in, 
yeah, I think these universities should have some moral obligation to tell students like, hey, this is how much your college degree is. And realistically, this is not going to help you find a job. Are you comfortable pursuing this just because it interests you? Because that's what you're doing. It's not going to be a career oriented thing. And this is something I think universities need to be telling prospective students so that prospective students also have something they can go back to parents to. When parents are like, just go to college, it doesn't matter what. These students can be like, hey, if I go to college for the thing I'm good at, it's going to cost a lot of money and it's not going to lead me to getting a better degree. How about you let me find my own path? Because I do think people are smart. Like the young people yeah. I've met, they're smart. They might they might be under the misconception that the college degree is going to help them. But even more than that, there are a lot of young people who know they're not ready for college, who know it's not what's right yeah. for them. And, and their parents don't listen to them because they're like, you don't know what you're talking about. But that's because their parents are stuck in this baby boomer thinking where they're like, the $10,000 degree will get you a six-figure salary forever. Why wouldn't you go to college? And these young people are like, no, the $40,000 degree will give me a lifetime of student debt and I will still be applying for the same jobs I would have if I had not gone to college at all because the only thing I'm good at is liberal arts and liberal arts degrees don't translate into a, well, a good paying job. Yeah, or sometimes it's like the field that you're in, there's no real school for it. Like people ask me about styling. And oh, like, there's well, no, there, there are schools, but they're scams. No, yeah. do, not go to a, do not go to a school that has a class on styling. That's yeah. my hot take. Because anyone I've known who's been a stylist they literally just started out because another stylist needed an assistant. Exactly. Yeah, there are certain ways some careers work, and it's kind of like skilled artisanal training. It's like taking on an apprentice, and, and that's not a college thing. Um, so the second point that Akers talked about that I thought was interesting was kind of tied to this, and it was about students not knowing how much college is actually going to cost. Uh, and Forbes actually talked about this too. Forbes was like, while most students get at least some financial aid, prospective students usually do not know how much aid they're getting until after they're accepted to a college. Which means that when you're applying, you actually have no idea how much you're going to be paying for college. Oh, yeah. Like, all the schools I applied for, I kind of, like, I was so silly. I applied to all these colleges that now I'm like, why did I think I would get into this college? Oh, like, I did the opposite. I didn't apply to any colleges, and I probably could have got into really good schools. Oh, yeah. Like, I applied to, like... Uh, the the Austin University, the big one there, Evergreen, yeah. like, you know, all these, like, big ones. And then I would, like, didn't even bother to, like, actually go to the good school, like, apply to the good school in Colorado, which is the University of Colorado Boulder. Mm -hmm. um, but I did uh, University of Denver as, like, my safe school. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know, I didn't know what a safety school was. I didn't know how applying for colleges worked. And I remember years later, I had a friend in San Francisco who I'd known in high school. And one day she was like, why didn't you apply for Ivy League schools? And I was like, what are you talking about? And she was like, you know, you could have got into an Ivy League school, right? Like you were really good in high school and you did all the things. I just assumed when I met you, that's because someone was telling you this is the stuff you had to do to go to an Ivy League school. And I was like, oh no, I just did that shit because I get bored a lot. I, I don't know. And she was like, that is so fucking stupid. Like, you're the one out of all of us who could have done something with your life. And I just remember that, like, rocked me. Because I was like, nobody told me. Nobody told me. Nobody told me that I was supposed to apply for a fancy school. I didn't even know that was an option for, like, a broke kid from Fresno. Like, oh, you, you, like, you could have had a full ride to Oberlin or something. Oh, Oberlin offered me a full ride scholarship and I threw the paper away because I'd never heard of Oberlin before and I assumed it was a bullshit school. 
Wow. And I was like, I don't know what the fuck this is. I have two friends who went to Oberlin. Yeah. Oh, my God. No, it's a really good school. I, the only, the time I heard about Oberlin again, because I remember the name because it was a silly name. I was like, this school's so stupid. Oberlin. Like, what are you, a wizard? Like, literally, this is my thought process. I did not hear about Oberlin again until I read a Lena Dunham interview, which she's awful, I know. And she was like, I went to Oberlin. And I was like, this rich girl went to Oberlin? Like, no shit. I got offered a Florida scholarship there. I had no fucking clue, you know? So, Whatever the case, when people are... You probably would have hated it. I probably would have hated it, yeah. I like that theory. But when when people are trying to figure out what kind of colleges to go to, we, lots of people have no reference point for what they can afford, what student loans would cover what, how much anything's actually going to cost. I didn't know how many grants I'd get, how many scholarships I'd get. I assumed going to the stupid fashion school in San Francisco would be cheaper than going to, like, a real fancy school. But looking at my classmates who were paying... They were playing Ivy League prices for those degrees. I met a guy later who went to Brown who graduated with $120,000 in student loan debt. Uh, several of my friends who did not even complete their bachelor's in fashion design graduated with the same or more in student loan debt. Holy shit. So it's like you don't have these reference points. So this means that for prospective students, it is nearly impossible to comparison shop for the cheapest degree in your field with the highest return on investment. So that means that you feel pretty locked into just a few colleges after applying, and that in turn incentivizes those colleges to not give you much financial aid because they know you're kind of stuck. They're like, well, you applied for three or four schools? Okay, we just have to beat three or four schools then. Yeah. And that's what kind of kills the idea of, like, capitalism inspires competition because it's just not happening here according to what Acres found. It kind of reminds me, you know how, like, oh my gosh, I feel like I heard this on the radio and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? They're like... Call around, like, let's say you need a knee replacement surgery. You should call around the hospitals to see what the price is and what the best price is. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? If you have a knee replacement, it's because your doctor told you to go to this one hospital to get the knee replacement. Yeah. You're going to shop around random doctors for a knee replacement? Yeah. Also, it's like you don't even, you need a referral from your primary care. You don't know what's covered in your insurance. It's like everything is such a fucking mess. Like, I, I, I like literally laugh because I was like, are you fucking kidding me? And they're like, if I call a place and like, how much is a knee replacement? They're going to be like, we have no fucking clue. No, yeah, they have no idea. And even just the way they write it up for your insurance varies. Like different insurance companies, they use like different codes for things. So you have to, whatever, it's wild. My mother worked in medical claims examining. This is the only reason why I know this. So on top of all of these things, there's also the thing I kind of mentioned earlier, which is that most students do attend college in their home state. You did, I did. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that in-state tuition, you get a discount. Uh, weirdly, at my school, no, because it was private. No, I, I, went got to a, I went to a private school and I got an in, in-state tuition Oh, you, you know, I probably got a bunch of scholarships because I was from exactly. Colorado. Okay, that yeah. makes sense. Because, like, that was actually, that private school was actually the cheapest school for me to go to because I got so many scholarships. Exactly. So, also another thing, on top of the, like, in-state discounts and in-state incentives, uh, lots of people go to colleges in their states because they still get to live at home with their parents during school, which just makes financial sense. Um, I didn't, but it was... It was, like, close enough to where they'd let me because I was – I started college when I wasn't 18 yet. Right. So that was, like, the furthest away I could probably get realistically. Yeah. So this means, though, that lots of students do feel limited to shop around schools in their area. And uh, that means that the opportunity for price gouging can occur. And I think about this a lot. Like, I talked about this earlier with my degree. It's, like, there weren't even public schools that offered a degree in fashion. Those just, like, didn't exist. So instantly, not not in my area. So instantly I was pushed into, okay, well, I got to go to a private for-profit school because they're the only ones offering the degrees. 
I mean, there were private schools that weren't for profit that offered like textile degrees. But again, I'm like, that's not going to be a job. I tried really hard to think about the job thing. And so for fashion design, it's like my options were all private for profit colleges. And there weren't public options really in my area to do it. Now there are some great community college options down here in Los Angeles, like uh, Santa Monica Community College. Mm -hmm. It's a great fashion design program, everything you probably need. Uh, People speak really highly of it. But at the time, also, I thought I needed a four-year degree because I thought you needed the bachelor's degree to do anything, you know? And and it just kind of pushed me into this school. When I was looking at the school options, this was really kind of the only one. And and I think that this is uh, true for a lot of people, what they're looking into. Uh, so that also kills the opportunity for that capitalism competition thing that everybody says is going to happen. That's not happening. Also, there's that whole thing she was talking about how, how new schools have trouble entering the game because the accreditation system is really difficult to navigate if you're new. So accreditors will judge schools based on their curriculum and their faculty, but they won't judge them on things like achieving better student outcomes for lower prices, which means schools with newer and cheaper but potentially more effective educational models, they might not even get accredited, right? So accreditation favors you doing the traditional model if you're a new school. Like we want to see big name professors who have a built-in history in this field. We want to see curriculum that we've seen other places that is like tried and true in their eyes. But that means that to get accreditation, you have to, yeah, do the exact same things that other schools are doing, which means your costs are going to be higher, you know, all these things. So they're not really favoring innovation in the college spectrum. And when we do see schools trying to do things in a more like innovative, cost-effective way, they're usually just like weird online scams. Yeah. Or cults. Or cults, right. Which are usually scams. Yeah. <laughs> and on top of all of this, contrary to what that Reagan money guy said about college getting more expensive because of government assistance, not true at all. State governments are actually contributing less to colleges in financial support, and that is part of the reason that college costs are up. So the opposite of what he said is true. So in 2020, most state legislatures contributed less to public education than they did in 2008. And state tax appropriations for education, they've gone down nearly 30% since 2001. Whoa. Yeah, pretty major. So Bankrate says even though many colleges received federal funding during the pandemic and available financial aid for students continues to increase over time, neither of these factors are solving the systemic issue of reduced state funding, one of the primary contributors to elevated tuition costs. And that's part of the reason why from 2008 to 2018, college tuition went up 36%, while the median income in the U.S. only went up 2%. Wow. Yep. Meaning college increased in cost at a rate of 18 times income, leaving us with annual costs of $43,000 for out-of-state students at public four-year schools in 2020 and 2021, and $54,000 for out-of-state students at private four-year universities. Whoa. Yeah. And again, those are the out-of-state figures, but you know, these are really expensive for even a a public four-year school, 43 grand if you're going to a school outside of your area. Otherwise, you're kind of stuck and growled into going to those in-state schools to get the better tuition rates. Oh, I thought my school was pricey at the time. Right. So knowing all of this, right, it's no surprise that by the end of 2018, nearly a quarter of people with student loans were in delinquency or default. Whoa, a quarter? Yes. And this was pre-COVID, a historically strong economy and job market. Whoa. Like, how many people were delinquent on their mortgages during the 2008 crisis, I wonder? Oh, that's a good question. Some figures, depending on the year you look at it, will cite this number as being more like 11% delinquency or default rate. But I think it depends on how you're interpreting delinquency or default. Because sometimes you can get forbearance for economic hardship, and that might be registered differently at private versus federal loan companies. But 
every figure I saw placed it between 11% and 25% throughout the 2000 teens into the early 2020s. Wow. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, why is this not more of a national emergency? Because you would think that it would... That, that's a high, that's a high number. Yes. Well, we will get into why. I mean, people are saying this is a crisis for this reason, but we will get into why people maybe are less eager to act on it. See, as just kind of like a precursor, a lot of people think of college as being this like white, liberal, kind of upper middle class pursuit. But the people who are hit the worst by student loans and not able to pay aren't the people who have $60,000 in student loans for a liberal arts degree. It's actually people who are the first people in their kind of family to go to college. It's a lot of black women and like Latino women who are trying to do something better for their futures. And they usually pursued really affordable colleges. So they only have around $10,000 of student loan debt because they were trying to be really financially responsible. But because of that, they're still dealing with systemic oppression and hiring practices. They're still less likely to get hired. If they do get hired, they're getting hired at lower rates. And this is making it harder and harder for them to keep up with their student loans because a lot of them don't have the family support of like, you know, wealth building over generations and generations that white people have had. So the reason why a lot of white people or white well-off people in particular aren't worrying about this is because the people who are disproportionately affected are, surprise, surprise, black and brown women. And so this is kind of why we hear, well, it's a student debt crisis, but the way we position it mentally, our framework is like, oh, those like liberal college educated elites, you know, but in reality, the people who are getting fucked over the most are very working class people of color, marginalized people who are getting harmed by this. So by the end of 2022, student loan debt in the US was over $1.7 trillion in total. And I never know how to position these like big figures. I'm like, is that a lot? Is that a little? What is that? But this was helpful for me to understand. That is more than the GDP of all but 11 countries worldwide. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we're doing a whole nation's worth of business just in student loan debt here. Uh, It's also more than every company in the Fortune 500 million, um, like by a lot. Like the closest companies to that only had like a third of that in their sales. Yeah, this is a huge industry. And the biggest burden for this debt falls on young people under the age of 30. Although... There are a lot of people over the age of 50 who've just never been able to shake their student loan. Yeah, I feel like, um, wasn't like Obama talking about, like he didn't pay off his student loans until after he got a book deal? That could be. I mean, yeah, because there are people who have just been kind of carrying them around for a long time. And and another thing, too, that happens, that this is just, like, colloquial, but I know when people are in hard positions, they'll do a forbearance on their student loans or a deferment. I've done this before. But the thing about most of those deferments for economic hardship is that unless it's for some sort of major thing like COVID, you're still accruing interest. Yeah, I was going to say, them. you still pay the interest. Yeah. They don't stop the interest. That That baby keeps on going. Right. So it's really easy for things to spiral out of control. So... In general today, it is technically true that full-time workers age 25 and older with a bachelor's degree earn $27,000 more per year than those with a high school diploma and no college degree, just looking at median salaries. But, you know, those figures are pretty generalized and not everyone who gets a college degree ends up in a higher paying position. As like we kind of talked about earlier, this all largely depends on what degree you get, right? Remember how we talked about almost every single degree, the unemployment rate was higher Mm -hmm. when you graduated than if you just, like, were the general population? 
Well, that's because analysts say the return on investment for a college degree will vary, yes, widely from person to person, degree to degree, and institution to institution. And according to one report, there are just 11 bachelor's degree programs that allow most graduates, not even all, most, to recoup the money spent on their college degree in five years or less. Wow. Yes. So those are nursing, electrical engineering, industrial engineering, aerospace engineering, dental support, construction management, general engineering, construction engineering, engineering technology, petroleum engineering, and quality control uh, and quality technology. Uh, you know what's funny? Hmm. I originally went to school for engineering. Well, because I have that CAD, because I took mm-hmm. like, because uh, I had like my CAD certificate pre-college. Right. That was the smartest thing I ever did in high school was um, like take classes in drafting that yeah. also qualified for college credit. That's why I was able to graduate early. Right. So like, I was like, oh, like I'll just do engineering because I can get paid, I can get paid the most. Not realizing you have to know math. Yeah, it's a lot of math. It's a and lot of math. Although I am good, I am good at physics, I do not understand math. Otherwise, I do not understand it. It's not my strong suit. I mean, this is very interesting, right? Because it does mean, like, the only way you could expect to have a high return on investment for your degree is if you go into healthcare or engineering or construction. Well, construction engineering. So I guess it's just healthcare and engineering. But, like you said, society cannot function if everyone is just an engineer or a healthcare provider. We yeah. need other jobs. We need other things. And not everybody is well-suited to do those things. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't want the aerospace engineer who's kind of bad at math. Yeah, you do. You do not want me to be your engineer. Yeah, it's just like you don't want me doing your dental support. Because I'm just going to think your teeth look really weird and cool. And I'm going to want to make a small art <laughs> film about them. You don't want me in your mouth doing dental work. Like, and, and some people are just not good at this shit. And not only is it not realistic for everybody to just pursue these degrees how would a society function if everyone just did these things on top of that it's not good for you if the people who are bad at this shit are the ones doing it yeah you know when i realized it was not for me like in like one of the beginning classes are like the end project will be you building a bridge um that must sustain traffic uh without killing people and i was like Oh, I don't, uh, no, no, this is too much, too much. I don't want to kill anybody. Right. Um, although there is a part of me, like, I always wanted to be an architect. Um, and I think that I could do architecture, but I would have too much anxiety about something falling down. Yeah, it's stressful. Um, on the flip side, if you get a degree in drama, dance, or zoology, Odds are you will never in your entire lifetime earn enough money to pay back that degree compared to if you'd never gone to college in the first place. Yeah. And this is especially true for a drama degree where 72.5% of graduates do not obtain a return on investment for their college degree ever. And while it might be easy to harp on the people who went to college to get a drama degree as being like, well, you're deeply unpractical. Like, why would you think that that would pay off? 
I just want to remind everybody that the average American watches around 15 years of television over the span of their lifetime. So clearly we do appreciate being entertained by those same people who pursue things like drama degrees. I mean, I do know someone with a drama degree who did get work. Uh-huh. Um, but it's not their career now. But they did they did make a living off of it for a while acting. Yeah, but, and that's pretty cool. But I mean, they were like basically like a lot of the other people who were they were interviewing with, like just literally I don't know. Did not go to school for it because you don't have to have a degree to act. Exactly. But I mean, I think it is just like, it speaks to how it's easy for us to laugh at people for not doing the smart thing, but it denies the fact that in society, for society to function and be well-rounded, we need people doing everything. Like, it's the same kind of people who are like, you don't want someone flipping burgers at McDonald's to make $15 an hour, do you? And I'm like, no, I want them to make $25 an hour because $15 an hour is fucking shit-ass garbage wages and nobody can live on even $15 an hour. It's like, I, I yeah, I, I want, if you want a hamburger, someone has to flip it and I... I like my fucking vegan fake burgers and I want someone flipping them and I think they should be afford able to afford to live. Well, that, that's the thing. It's like, um, that's actually a really, really important job is to feed people. Yes. Food preparation. I, I want mean, someone preparing okay, food. I mean, are these the same? Are, I'm just wondering if this is some Anne Rand bullshit where it's like, well, everybody can just eat food from like a robot and if you're rich, you just have servants. Well, I think the thing is people... People with this mindset, they view everybody individually. They don't think comprehensively. They're not they're not expanding their logic. So they're like, you individual person are complaining about being poor. Why don't you learn how to code and then work in tech? And we're like, <laughs> the coding. Think, think bigger. First of all, not everybody can do that. Not everybody can do that. That's fine. But second of all, think bigger. You want a society where every single person codes? How does that fucking work? Who's farming? Who's picking food? Who's making sure you eat? Who's building your houses? If everybody's a coder... Like, society cannot function if every single person just codes. So it seems like, realistically, everybody in every job needs to be able to be paid enough to live a good life. Um, I think every we could live in a society of just coders. You want us to code housing? The problem is, we're going to run out of vests. Um, we're going to run out of puffy vests. Yeah, they, they all, all wear the, the puffy vests, it's true, and drive the, the Subarus. There's not enough Subarus for all the coders. Oh, wait, Teslas. Oh, they also sometimes just ride fixed-year bicycles. Oh. Yeah. So whatever. The college graduate job market, basically it's super stratified. Stratified. So if you're not cut out to be an engineer or work in healthcare, you might be running into some issues repaying your student loans. And even with a higher paying job, if you're able to get it, research shows that the increase in wealth that a degree provides has declined significantly over the past 50 years due to the rising cost of college and also just like the increase in other forms of consumer debt. So we're more likely to have credit card debt. We're more likely to have car loans. Our housing mortgages are more likely to be higher because everything's just getting more expensive. And that is why people today say we're currently in a student loan debt crisis. So how did we get here as a country? We have a little timeline for that. You know what it starts with, Kenna? Um, uh, I bet it's going to be something fucked up. Yeah, it's just hating communism. Like, everything is starting because we hated communism. So, literally, though, the, the whole student loan thing in the United States started way back in 1958 with this thing called the National Student Loan Program. So, the first time the United States decided, hey, maybe we should invest in, like, American education. It was during the Cold War. And that's because we were worried that the communists in the USSR were beating us at science and technology. Like, in 1957, Russia announced the first successful launch of an, a satellite orbiting Earth, and the USA 
flipped out. We were like, oh my God, Russia's launching things into space. Well, so we were like, okay, uh, we need more scientists. We need more mathematicians. We need more engineers like ASAP. So in 1958, they launched the National Student Loan Program, which was aimed at expanding access to higher education. Really, though, this was a military effort. And it was created from this thing called the National Defense Education Act, which kind of ties in with the military aspect. Basically, the U.S. military realized that if it wanted to dunk on the USSR, we would need some nerds to help, right? So the solution they came up with was like, we got to make college easier to afford so that more nerds can get advanced degrees and increase their nerd knowledge to build us rocket ships and weapons so we can fuck over Russia. This was their whole logic. It's pretty insidious, you know? So this is where we started getting student loans in the United States, but it was only for those few specialized fields that would help the United States not be the laughing stock of communism around the globe. Yeah, I mean, I might be jumping ahead of myself here, but I don't think that uh, I have this like kind of conspiracy theory and I feel like I've been like seeing some stuff on like Twitter and TikTok where it's like, the U.S. military will never allow universal college because how else are they going to get kids to join the military except to pay for college? I mean, I think that a lot of people have been saying that. It's a talking point, and I think there probably is some truth to it. But there are some fields where the U.S. military does benefit from people having college educations. and and But now, of course, obviously, you can just go to a private defense contractor to get those people with that education and that skill set. So, you know, it's a different relationship because of the military-industrial complex. But then in 1965, we saw this other development in trying to make college accessible that wasn't just focused on those like mathematics, science, engineering degrees. And this was, um, you know, to get people into education in other fields, this was the Guaranteed Student Loan Program, which came as part of the Higher Education Act. And this created a relationship between the federal government, banks, and college campuses. So Elizabeth Shermer, who's an historian and associate professor at Loyola University, Chicago, has researched and written about student loans in the United States. And she says the Guaranteed Student Loan Program is really the big original student loan program. And it was modeled off of the U.S. mortgage system. Yeah. So basically, loans for college wouldn't come from the federal government, but the federal government would insure these loans. They would assure repayment to bankers who are willing to give the loans out. So they'd be like, hey, if you want to give out student loans and someone defaults, we'll insure it. So you get your money back, no matter what. Socialism to me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How dare they? Um, So this was kind of how mortgage systems worked in the U.S. And they were like, well, that's working. We'll just do this. But I mean, obviously, it's not the same, though, because if someone did make their mortgage payment, the bank would repossess their house. You can't repossess someone's degree. Thought crime. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Woo. So that kind of was going along until 1972. Not very long, right? This is like seven years later. Then the Higher Education Act gets reauthorized and the Student Loan Marketing Association, a.k.a. Sally May, was created. So my loans were through Sally May. That was my my lending thing. And if the name Sally May sounds like some other names you may have heard, it's because it was modeled after Fannie Mae, which was the program created during the Great Depression that made it easier for people... Uh, banks to buy and sell mortgage debt. So we talked about that on our episode on the Great Recession, also number 70, Crash Into Me, if you want to learn more about how that system works. Pretty annoying and weird, and basically it's just like commodify everything. Capitalism is king. Ah! So Sally Mae started off with this goal of offering private student loans along with other financial products to make it so that more people could afford to go to college. And along with that, banks could now buy and sell student loan debt just like they could buy and sell mortgages. 
And as this was happening, college tuition started to see a small uptick in prices. But it's worth noting that during the 70s, um, like maximum Pell Grants covered nearly 80% of your cost of tuition. Today, it's more like 30%. Oh, and it also covered like room and board too. Like it just paid for like almost everything. So the uptick in costs we saw in the 70s is still really different than what we think of today as like an increase loan prices. It was pretty moderate. But still, people did during this time start to look into private student loans to supplement the now rising cost of their educations. People like your mom, for example, who was like, yeah, I just paid for it with my part-time job. Now this might have been getting a little more difficult and you might need to take out a small loan, say for $10,000 to complete your college degree. So, While this was happening, Congress was also pressured into cutting like taxes and spending. So that meant that appropriations for colleges were cut. So then colleges responded by just increasing tuition to balance out those cuts and support from the government. Then around 1992, we start to see some issues come up with modeling student loans after mortgages. Like it's not being run very well. Uh, One student lender bank just went bankrupt. It was kind of a mess. So the government enacted the direct loan program, which now said, look, instead of insuring loans that banks gave to students, the U.S. Department of Education is just going to give the loans to students directly. And the benefit of this was that it was more cost efficient and also it was cheaper for borrowers and easier for colleges. And this kind of kills me because it reminds me of arguments about public health care. Like it's just cheaper and more efficient to have a public option like 100% of the time because from an administrative standpoint alone, it's easier to figure out. But people still act like it's so inefficient. But it's like, no, all all of our evidence shows that when the government just does things directly, it's actually way more efficient. So whatever. So by 1993, we see the income contingent repayment plan come about. This says that qualified borrowers should never be expected to pay more than 20% of their discretionary income towards student loans, or they can do 12 years of fixed payments, whichever is lower. Then in 2007, the income-driven repayment plan was introduced, and that capped payments at 15% of discretionary income and forgave the balance of loans after 25 years of payments. I definitely took advantage of that one uh, during the recession. That, like, saved me. But, of course, I was still accruing interest during all that time. Uh, that I was like, hey, my income is so bad. Like my percentage is basically zero. And they were like, okay, yeah, you don't have to pay anything for a while. So I'm super familiar with these things. Then in 2010, the pay as you earn program came out and that capped payments at 10% of your discretionary income and cancellation of loans was enacted after 20 years. And as we can see through all of this, this idea of the federal government being involved in student loans, it's nothing new. It is built into our very fabric of student debt here in the United States. And it has been since the 1950s. So that brings us to 2022. Joe Biden, running for president, was talking all about canceling student loan debt, right? Student loan forgiveness, all these things. Now, I personally was kind of confused about what exactly the student loan forgiveness plan was when it came out. It seemed like there were like different tiers and different things to experience. Um, You know, he did say like, hey, if you earn less than $125,000 a year, you'll get $10,000 knocked off your student loan debt. I did hear that and I was like, I got less than $10,000 my student loan debt. That's nice. Yes. Yeah, right? But then I realized it probably, 8000 probably wouldn't be covered because of the private lender. Right. So he also announced a federal student loan forgiveness plan officially on August 24th, 2022, that said if this was passed, it would grant up to $20,000 in debt relief for borrowers. And a new income-driven repayment plan was introduced, which capped payments at 
5% of the borrower's discretionary income. And the Department of Education uh, expects that they will start implementing some parts of that repayment plan thing by the end of 2023. But the debt forgiveness part ran into some other issues, which you talked about earlier, Kenna. Yeah. The thing most of these programs, like I said, is you're still accruing that interest even while making low or sometimes no monthly payments if you're in forbearance. But COVID-19 forbearance was an exception. They paused interest during COVID-19 and paused payments. Yeah, that was super cool. Um, But, you know, the student loans coming back now from COVID-19, where everybody's been kind of budgeting without having to take that into account, everybody suddenly having to start paying these things back could be a major issue for people, especially with inflation and cost of goods rising so much and wages not really rising to meet them. This could be in really scary business and people could start missing payments and we could have a catastrophe occur as a result of this. So the repayment clock for COVID-19 forbearance is scheduled to start back up again uh, at the end of August. And at that point, loans will resume accruing interest and missed payments will start to have an impact on your credit score again. But while all this was kind of going on, like introducing this idea of the student loan forgiveness, some people were informed that they did qualify for up to $20,000 of student debt cancellation. But then lots of lawsuits hit the Supreme Court arguing that the debt cancellation part was illegal. And in May, the Senate voted to overturn Biden's student debt forgiveness plan. But then in early June, uh, like just a few days ago, Biden vetoed that. And now it's back at Capitol Hill for a possible override attempt again. So all of this thing about the student debt cancellation, it's just been kind of been put on pause. 26 million borrowers have already applied to have their student loans uh, forgiven, though, and 16 million of those were already processed. Uh, I personally did apply, but I have not heard anything back, so I figure I have to be part of the 10 million that haven't been processed yet. Did you apply? I applied. I haven't heard anything. Okay, so that's us. So there's currently no way for people to apply anymore because of all the lawsuits and nobody's sure what's happening, but technically you only have until December 31st of 2023 to apply. So it's all just kind of this weird, complicated mess, and everyone's just stuck kind of seeing what happens. I'm just so mad because basically the way that things are set up because the government manages all the loans, they literally could have just done it on their own computers without having to make anyone sign up for anything. Yeah, it's pretty annoying. Um, All right, so if we're here now, what okay, what exactly makes this crisis level? Like we were talking about, like you kind of were like, why aren't more people freaking out about this? And it's weird because people like are kind of freaking out about it. But, like, not at the level you would expect. Okay, it's just, like, what I am at, I mean, you know more about this. Like, to me, the reason why the economy was hit so hard in 2008 is because a lot, a lot of people stopped paying their mortgages because they couldn't afford it anymore because they had these stupid loans. Right. So, basically, that kind of creates, like, a butterfly effect that affects different parts of the economy. Like... If you, honestly, weirdly, that movie, The Big Short, I think explains it kind of better or yes. like kind of okay, where it's like this affects this part of the bank, which is like invested in this other part of the bank, which is that basically it will have a ripple effect through the okay. entire economy. So here is why this is different. Two reasons. First of all, remember how I said a bank can repossess your house. A bank can't repossess your college degree. Uh, you already got your college degree. So you're not losing your college degree. You already got it. So that's one thing. The second thing is remember that in the 90s, the government started to realize that basing the student loan program on the same thing that the housing market was based on made no sense. It was kind of fucked up. Mm -hmm. So they took over and just started giving the loans directly from the other part. There still are private student loans, but the the federal loans as we think of them, they're not, you don't go to a a private bank to get them now. They're, They're administered through the federal government. And when doing that, 
that means that the cost associated with all of those loans was already factored into budgeting at the origination point. So really, if we'll get into this, but if we all just stopped paying our student loans, pretty much nothing bad would happen to the government at all. Really? Yes, wow. and I'll explain why. Now, that coming up right now, though, the current situation where everybody is expected to pay their student loans back, that is actually a crisis. And like we talked about, the huge amounts of student loan debt that we see in the United States, it's really unprecedented. It's a huge level and it's very new. So in recent years, student loan debt has grown enormously, right? And now, yeah, we, it's what we see today. It's one of the biggest forms of consumer borrowing in the country. Remember, it's more than doubled over the past 20 years alone. And the current burden of student loan debt is higher than car loans and credit cards. In fact, only mortgage debt is higher for the average American consumer. The total student loan balance by borrower went up 25% from 2009 to 2021 alone. And students are borrowing more because, yeah, like we talked about, tuition prices keep going up and it's going up so much faster than income. And the cost of college and the resulting debt is higher in the United States than in almost every other place in the world, right? Especially other wealthy countries where higher education is often free or heavily subsidized. Meanwhile, the United States is still cutting funding and cutting subsidies for the college kind of experience. And as this is happening, the financial benefits of a bachelor's degree in the United States, those decline at an annual rate of 0.86%, uh, around approximately 1% annually for men and 0.75% for women. So every single year, it's getting around 1% less effective to have your college degree. Whoa. The financial benefits of a bachelor's degree decline, you know, kind of on this consistent level but while this is happening since 1991, also the value of currency has declined. So the value of money has has declined 27.7% faster than wages have grown. Oh my God. So, so the value of the degree is getting lower. The money on the whole is getting less valuable. And in the 21st century, the median wage increased at a rate of just 3.4%, while the average undergraduate student loan debt value grows at an annual rate of 6.74%. So- Degrees getting less valuable, degrees getting more expensive, money's getting tighter overall. This is kind of the financial picture we're painting here. And the average student borrower is gonna spend 20 years trying to pay these loans off. And over that time, it's going to acquire so much interest, right? Then this other thing's happened, which Kenna, you talked about, parents have started taking out parents' student loans to help fund their children's degrees because their children now aren't even able to take out enough loans to pay for their own degrees. Yeah, I personally feel guilty about that one, but I did not ask. <laughs> no, and your parents and you both thought you were doing the right thing. That's what it all comes down to. And average student debt balances amongst parents was over $35,000 in 2018 to 2019, up from around 5,000 bucks in the early 1990s. So if you're a parent taking out a student loan for your child, your balance is $35,000 or more on average. And while this is all happening, the private student loan market has grown more than 70% over the last decade alone. Whoa. Yeah. And college debt is now, yes, hitting people in weird ways. So most college students graduate with less than $20,000 in debt, which is pretty good. All right. 7% of graduates, though, owe more than $100,000 each. Whoa. And these are the figures that start to mess up our averages and our medians and how we're looking at it. And they make up 33% of the total student loan debt in the country. Is 7% of yes. people. Yes. And experts are finding, meanwhile, that they're actually not the ones having as much trouble paying back their degrees. The people with the smaller amounts of debt, like I talked about earlier a bit, they're having the hardest time paying it back because they are not getting the graduate degrees and professional degrees that come with higher incomes that make it easier to pay off 
those loans. Students who do not complete their degrees but still have debt from trying to, those are the people who are actually financially compromised the most, like a lot of the kids I went to school with. And people who would attend private for-profit schools are more likely to carry huge amounts of debt. So this means that my classmates who went to a private for-profit art school because they felt pressure to get a college degree from somewhere, anywhere, but dropped out because it was too difficult, they are literally the ones who graduated with over $100,000 in debt and no way to pay it off. They are the ones who are most affected by the student loan debt crisis. And a lot of people I went to college with, student loans ruined their lives. They did. They really did. So I kind of saw the worst of the worst right up front. And graduates with high amounts of debt will often settle for lower paying, lower skilled jobs that they can start right away because they feel pressured to keep up with these payments. And as a result, they often take jobs quickly that aren't the right jobs for them because they can't afford to wait. And they end up missing out on the benefits professionally that come with even having a degree if they complete their degree. So those with student loan debt are less likely also to have taken out car loans. They have worse credit scores. And they are, like you kind of referenced, Kenna, more likely to be living with their parents, whether they want to or not. And this is stuff I saw. A girl I went to college with graduated with over 100000 didn't graduate, sorry, left, dropped out with over $100,000 in student loan debt, didn't finish her degree. She uh, had always lived in Sacramento with her parents, and she was a low-income, you know, Latina woman. And she was commuting to San Francisco from Sacramento for school. And when she dropped out, she's like, yeah, I just have to live with my parents forever now. Because how the fuck am I going to pay back $100,000 in student loans oh. for a degree I don't have? And I'm pretty sure she worked at, like, Foster Freeze. Oh. And I mean, that's not saying that that's, like, a bad job. I have no idea. No, no, no. It's not it's a bad like... job. But it's it's not a job that pays you enough to pay back $100,000 in student loan debt. Like, people who become doctors or surgeons and have $100,000 in student loan debt. Yeah. And even, like... Oh, God, I just even it's funny now because like now you start hearing about people who you would think be able to pay back stuff like lawyers, you know, doctors who are just like my student loans are like out of control. And you're just like, well, you should be able to make it back. But I don't think even lawyers make as much as they used to. Yeah, my one friend who went to law school for a long time, she made as much as we did. She, she just recently got a promotion. So I think she makes a little bit more, but I don't even think she's making a six figure salary and she's been out of the work she's been out of college now for at least 10 years Whoa. yeah um so a thing i touched on earlier is that most of the negative consequences we see for the student debt crisis they affect marginalized communities like like every bad thing in the united states right so elizabeth Shermer, who was that historian and associate professor at loyola university in chicago who researches and writes about student loans she said just like we now know how the mortgage program exacerbated racial and gender inequality the same thing happened with the student loan programs. So black college students, for example, are far more likely to take on debt. 71% of black students borrow federal loans to pay for attendance at four-year colleges compared to just 56% of white students. They also generally will take on more debt than white students, an average of $25,000 more. And lots of people think this is because black families have had less of an opportunity to build wealth because of systemic oppression, so their families are not able to help them as much. Um, black uh, graduates are also more likely to struggle with loan repayment after graduating, in part because they typically have lower levels of family wealth, like we talked about, but also because they face hiring discrimination and low pay. 46% of black student borrowers report they delayed buying a home as a direct result of student loan debt. And uh, 33% of Hispanic student borrowers say they put off getting married due to their student loan debt, and 37% said they delayed having children, and those numbers are both higher than white borrowers. 
And in general, uh, Black, Latine, and like Indigenous American Indian students are all more likely to default on their loans than white students because of the additional financial stress, because they're earning less money due to discrimination, and their loans are higher because of a lack of family wealth and safety support system. And also because a lot of predatory colleges are for-profit private schools will prey on people exactly like this. A lot of my classmates at school were specifically people of color from poorer towns in the Central Valley of California. So on top of racial and ethnic divides and how student loan debt affects borrowers, there's also a gendered element to take into account. So according to this analysis by the American Association of University Women, women own nearly two-thirds of student loan debt in the U.S. Whoa! Yes, women are more likely to finance a college degree, and they tend to borrow more money when doing so. But then they have to contend with the gender pay gap upon entering the workforce. So as of 2019, women working full-time earned approximately 82% of what men were paid, and we know that this figure further stratifies with women of color, right? So within the first four years after graduation, men were able to pay off an average of 38% of their outstanding debt, uh, but women were only able to pay off around 31%. And even that, I'm like, damn, people are paying off 30% of their debt within four years of graduating college? What the fu- I, that sounds I pretty mean, good. It is- granted, we graduated into the Great Recession. Yeah, that's true. You're totally right. Um, so that blows my mind because I feel like I, like I was broke for probably... Oh, geez, like seven years after college. Oh, for sure. Um, But yeah, even though this sounds like a lot to me for how much they were paying off, this slower payoff amount for women is there statistically. And it means that women have a harder time getting ahead financially after college in all areas of life, even if they are able to find a job that kind of supports them. And then when it comes to retirement, twice as many men versus women are very confident about their ability to retire with a comfortable lifestyle. And that directly has to do, obviously, with people's income and how much wealth they're able to build and the return on investment from their college degrees. And working men have an estimated median of $76,000 safe for retirement, while working women only have a median of $23,000. So when it comes to emergencies, also worth noting, women have a median of $2,000 safe for emergencies compared to $8,000 for men. So we really see that kind of the financial reality across the board, including from student loans, right, and how taking on the student loan debt and the return on investment from the jobs you get as a result of it, how that just disproportionately affects people based on their gender. And then, though, on top of this, when you look at the combination of, like, the intersectional assessment, right, of race, ethnicity, and gender, Black women take on the most debt on average out of every group and struggle along with Hispanic women to repay their debt the most. So while 34% of women in general report being able to meet their essential expenses within the past year while paying back student loans, that number is higher uh, for black women, 57%. This is reporting problems meeting their general. So this is an issue, again, when you were like, why aren't more people freaking out about this? The people who are disproportionately affected by this are poor black women. 57% are like, I'm paying back student loans and I don't know how I'm able to live while doing this. And of course, our society, because it's super, super racist, doesn't pay attention to the most marginalized people in our communities. Also, there was another interesting statistic that queer people are more likely to take on higher levels of student loan debt. So it seems like marginalized people who don't have a lot of family support and don't have access to a lot of wealth because of their experiences of discrimination are more likely to rely on loans to try to get the good degree to better their economic situation. And yeah, it just kind of creates this harder cycle of debt for people to escape. So hearing all of this and being like, okay, this is definitely like a social justice issue, right? Uh, This is like an American people issue. This is a capitalism issue. This is just bad on the whole. It makes you wonder, it makes me wonder anyway, what are other countries doing for college? 
Yeah, I'm guessing better. Yeah, they're doing better. Uh, currently, several countries worldwide offer free college for their citizens, uh, at least up through undergraduate programs, right? Mm. At least, like, the equivalent of your BA. So examples of that would be Argentina, Austria, Belarus, Brazil, Cuba, Cyprus, Czech Republic, Denmark, Finland, Germany, Greece, Iceland, India, Lithuania, Malta, Norway, Panama, Poland, Scotland, Slovakia, Slovenia, Spain, Sweden. All those countries offer free college all the way through your bachelor's at least. I'm surprised because you know how like whenever we have maps of like who doesn't offer universal health care, it's just like us in Brazil yeah. as like the major big countries. Yeah. I'm actually surprised even Brazil, who I feel like is like kind of closer economic model mm-hmm. to the U.S., like least amount of socialism, yeah, still provides free college. I could be I could be wrong. Well, it's actually that. Brazil does a pretty good job even because a few of these places also offer free college to international students too and brazil is one of them let's go yeah also (laughs) argentina cuba czech republic germany iceland and panama for example sure this might be a hack (laughs) yeah um but then you know this is the same thing where people in these countries are like can americans not come here please you're fucking up our economy (laughs) so you know it's like the global gentrification thing there are also a bunch of countries that have really cheap colleges, the norm. Like, you'll be paying less than $1,000 a year, and, like, people there don't really have student loan debt problems. It's, like, their colleges are the equivalent cost of our community colleges here, mm. but, like, for a four-year degree. And that would be, like, Andorra, Belgium, Bulgaria, China, France, Italy, Luxembourg, Portugal, that kind of a thing. So, you know, we always hear USA, best country on Earth. USA. 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 Right, so... Why are all these countries able to do something that we can't? Why are they all able to do free or extremely low-cost college? Because we love um, for people to suffer. We do. We love for people to suffer. Um, Making all public colleges and universities tuition-free in the United States, that would cost around $80 billion per year. Sure, it sounds like a lot of money. I don't know about what $80 billion a year is. I don't know what that looks like. I can't imagine that. But... It's actually easier to imagine when you know that in the year 2019, the United States spent $91 billion on policies that subsidized college attendance, uh, a lot of which would be shifted just to do straight up facilitating free tuition instead. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, okay, I don't, I haven't really watched a lot of this show, but it reminds me of that show Veep. Yes. Like, you can't actually just solve the problem. No, it's all so political and entrenched in so many things that it's just, like, failure on top of failure on top of failure. Ah, it's just, like, at this point, I feel like businesses and weird fundamentalist Christian cults... Sorry, I'm watching The Shiny Happy People right now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to watch Um, that. And, like, are so just entrenched in our government that, like, you just can't do anything yeah i mean this is why i think the two most interesting episodes we did are two of the ones that actually have the least amount of listens maybe it's just like not sexy enough but i think this is the most important thing which is the military budget and lobbying oh exactly i feel like the military budget one is actually our most important i think that episode and the lobbying episodes yes hands down are two most important episodes I totally agree, because this is the reason why everything is fucked up in our in our country. Yeah, it's like military, and that they go together because it's the military-industrial complex. Yes, it's and they like, have major lobbying groups, totally. And our most important bonus episode about the military-industrial complex, 
is the MCU. The Iron about Man episode. The Iron Man episode. I, I gotta do one about WandaVision. Oh my god, you have to. A feminist critique of WandaVision would be I so good. I am so fucking mad at their treatment of Wanda. Not in WandaVision, but in the, stri- do- oh, the new yeah. Doctor Strange movie. They fucking did her so dirty. They really like, did. I'm fu- I'm over it. After watching the new Guardians of the Galaxy, I'm kind of done. Even though I thought it was good. Oh, somebody told me I shouldn't watch it because I really can't deal with animals getting hurt. And oh, they're like, the whole plot oh. is just animals getting hurt. It made me want to be vegan again. Yeah, okay. Like, so I it's very, it. like, it is very, like, uh, you know, it's it's very, like, PETA. Yeah, okay. I mean, not, I mean, not PETA. I mean, like, it's like. It's like if PETA wasn't weird. Yeah, it's like a lot of, it's very anti-animal testing. Oh, okay. All right. I just, I'm I'm petting and kissing fork on my lap. I would say (laughs) maybe wait a while to watch it. All right. Yeah. Um, Okay. So this whole thing about how expensive it would be. uh, Remember how people were complaining that one of the reasons why college was so expensive is because of the bloated administrative costs. Well, just like we saw when the federal government took over student loans and administered them directly and it made everything cheaper and easier, uh, having a single payer plan usually does reduce administrative costs on the whole, making everything cheaper. So if it was just like free tuition, you wouldn't have to contend with those administrative costs being so astronomical because you wouldn't be dealing with whole financial aid departments and the FAFSA and dealing with scholarships and grants and getting money from this lender and this and this. It's like this whole freaking mess. You know what's funny? I've talked before to people who are like, well, we can't have like universal health care because what about like this whole section of our economy that basically relies on the bureaucracy of our health system? Like insurance processors, medical billers, reset, you know, just, there are, there's like a whole section of economy, like of our economy that just is people dealing with insurance companies. Yeah, no, it's totally true. My mother works in insurance claims examining. Mm-hmm. That's like, it is a whole thing, but also it's like, as technology develops, so many industries shift and change and yeah. job demands fluctuate and anybody with office office experience can translate into so many different That's types what, of office experience. Yeah, or like imagine how many people used to be like telephone operators. That, right. Or like just jobs that don't exist anymore. Like there's tons of them. Yeah, there's tons of them. And I think this is really not a reason to be holding back society from advancing. Well, I think people think that, like, if you don't have the private sector making jobs, then people will expect a safety net. Okay, well, we're going to get into something really interesting about job creation and student loans in a second that you might like. Okay, but before we get into that, let's go back to the military thing. Because the military thing, I can't help but think about it, like, every time we think about why we can't have nice things. So, In 2024, the military budget in the U.S. is proposed at $886 billion, which is nearly 10 times the cost of free college. Yeah, and I'm sure, like, at least, (laughs) like, 20% of that is just, like, one fucked up helicopter. Totally. You know it's true. (laughs) And also worth noting, this $69 billion increase over the 2023 budget, which in itself is almost enough to shoulder the cost of free college for all, even if we didn't transfer any of the payments we're already making as a country towards it. Okay, it pisses me off because then I start being like, I'm a taxpayer, but it's like, dude, so much of my paycheck goes to fucking taxes. For bullshit helicopters. For bullshit helicopters to make the CEO of Raytheon a a billionaire. Okay, so I'm on the same level of angry. So that means that if we had just stuck with the already inflated uh, 2023 budget and just not increased it $69 billion for 2024, that alone would be enough to cover 
most of the expense of free college. Uh, and it's worth noting that our 2023 military budget was still egregious. It was still over twice the size of the next largest military budget globally, which is China, who came in at a little under $300 billion annually. Who is supposed to be our biggest, you know, our biggest threat. <clears throat> so, again, like Ken and I mentioned, I think our episode on the U.S. military budget is one of our most important episodes. So if you want to be enraged about the U.S. military budget along with us, you can listen to our episode Big Gun starring Nicolas Cage, where we share all sorts of horrifying information about how our money is mismanaged by the military. Um, basically, as a country, we are not using this military money wisely, and often its use is not accounted for at all. Instead, it usually goes to fund private defense companies, just privately owned companies, and line CEOs' pockets with inflated, ridiculous purchases that do nothing to protect anybody. Yeah, I always think about how during the Iraq War, a billion, with a B, dollars worth of cash just went yes, missing. Just cash. Just cash. Like yeah. in like imagine carrying around just like trash bags of cash. This is what these people were doing. It's it's wildly infuriating. Um one report showed that a private defense contractor was overcharging the Pentagon by as much as three thousand eight hundred percent for purchases on routine items. Uh, it's like uh when you go to the hospital and a band-aid is two hundred dollars. Yeah, it's totally like that. Um $315 billion of the new budget request alone for this year is supposed to go towards buying, researching, and developing weapons from privately owned weapons manufacturers like Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, and Raytheon. The same folks who brought us those broken helicopters we talked about in that episode that don't fly, ineffective airplanes to the tune of billions of dollars in cost, all other CEOs cleared between 20 to $24 million per year each in compensation packages Based entirely off our tax dollars. Uh, I still remember. Do you remember Star Wars? Yes. How they were going to shoot the shoot the stuff out of the sky with lasers. Yeah, they were going to do like a laser project. It's wild. Uh, and for reference, on top of the one billion dollars in cash that the military just straight up lost, the U.S. military also could not account for an additional sixty billion dollars lost to waste and fraud in Iraq alone. <laughs> just in Iraq alone, and that is. Almost the cost of free college for a year. It makes me almost feel like those, like, uh, fiscally conservative Republicans being like, the money isn't managed well. Okay, so there is actually a funny subset of Republicans who do hate the military budget because they're super into being financially conservative. And sometimes when I'm researching these, I'll end up on these, like, conservative websites that are like, very American family values, Christian normative, but then they're like, what the fuck is the military doing with our money? And I'm like, this is like the funniest Venn diagram overlap of our value system, just like hating the way the military is spending money. It is funny to me because sometimes I feel like probably the easiest people to convert to straight up communism are fiscally conservative people, like real fiscal conservatives. It's true because doing everything is usually more efficient through and cost effective through a socialist lens. And then if you're like, if they're like, well, we care about you know, the community and family, and it's like, meh? Yeah. Communism? Communism. Communism. (laughs) So, also, like, in the past year alone, we've given $115 billion in emergency funding to support Ukraine in the past year and a half. Nobody's like, how are we affording that? That's more than the cost of free college education for a year. That we've just given to support Ukraine in this proxy war between the U.S. and Russia, which is going on, right? It's just like, this is like weird third-party... Is it trifecta? What is it? I feel like how come, I, you know, because we were in high school during the Iraq War, and like, I don't think people the 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 media did not cover how big the anti-war effort was. It was like, huge. And I, 
it's so funny to me how, like, you know, during the 60s, there were so many, like, what, like, we should end war. Just as a thing. Like, yeah, we should just war end is, war. I feel like, why are people just not, like, just war is bad. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Uh, and I just keep coming back to this. Nobody ever asks how we afford any of this military funding, both for our own military, for proxy wars abroad, for us getting involved in other people's things. Nobody ever asks how will we afford this. But the second you want to do something good for us, something that's positive that other countries have, we're like, what if we made college free, a thing that many other countries are able to do with less money than us? Everyone's like, impossible. How would we possibly afford that? And it's like, we're spending the same amount of money on other random military shit all the time that's not necessary to protect us or, like, keep us safe, you know? And and it is just this, like, weird military trifecta issue. And free college, again, comes in at just 10% of the proposed military budget. So even if you love the U.S. military and you think the U.S. military is so important to keep us safe, you wouldn't cut 10% of that budget, which is already over twice the size of the next largest military budget, to support giving people who live here a, a good quality of life with your tax dollars. Also, just to come at it from, like, another angle, like, it didn't the military, I could be wrong, but didn't the military itself say that one of the most important security issues facing the country is inequality? So if you use 10% of that budget to educate people, creating less inequality, or let's say you don't even give a shit about equality, you use 10% of your budget to educate people, those educated people are going to make so many weapons for you. And you just made money I off mean, that. I mean, that is the whole reason the military wanted to fund education during the Cold War, because they wanted to fight the USSR, and they're like, we need better weapons, blah. I'm just saying, like, it's from a military... If I... It's actually fucked up, because I feel like I would be good at the military. <laughs> like, not that I... I would not join the military. <laughs> I'm just saying that, but, like, I would be like... Wait, it's just better, like, we're getting a better return on investment here, guys. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's one of those things where it's like everybody should agree that the military budget is overblown and the only people it really benefits are the CEOs of, like, Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. Like, those are the only people benefiting from this. Like, everybody else should agree that this is a mess. Um, You know, my take, I am 100% anti the U.S. military. Like, I am anti-imperialist. I think that is the biggest waste of our money ever uh i once got like death threats from the u.s military when i worked at a company that made an anti-military thing i didn't even design it but like you know it, it's like something people are very sensitive to and you hear people be like a cab a cab a cab but people still have very complicated feelings about the military and don't view the military as like an armed tool of capitalism and imperialism and oppression around the globe and that's something that people really have a hard time wrapping their heads around so it's like okay even if you're not there even if you're not with me on that level even if you still think the military needs to exist or does some good globally at the very least, you can get on board with the fact that there is so much military waste that just managing the military budget better would leave extra space for us to use some of that funding towards things that are better for everybody. And and even if you can't get on that level, yeah, you would have to get on the level that practically, from a military strategy standpoint, just like our government decided back in the 1950s, having a better educated population strategically will advance the position of your country globally. Yeah, also, like... Even, like, if you, like, if you are invested in the military working, you know, if you, you know, let's, thought experiment, you believe in it as an institution. The way that it is run now is so nasty, which is, like, things go, like, basically things going to these companies that just lose a billion dollars. And who are some of the 
poorest members are, of our society are service members. Right, yeah. And I've seen, like, exposés about, like, the living conditions that military... On bases? Like, yeah. Mold, you know, I heard this report on NPR the other day that they're like, mold is one of the biggest issues in the military right now. And I'm like, you're having people work go to war to live in moldy barracks and yeah. moldy, like, base housing. Like, you know, like... There's oh, all these programs that give discounts to military service members because they don't fucking make any money. Well, and they make less than minimum wage for like, their work there. Yeah. yeah, it's just like you should like everyone should be like there needs to be no more military spending on bullshit helicopters. At least just pay the fucking people who are veterans, you know. Yeah, I mean I I, I think it's I think it's very interesting too because a lot of people who are politically very left leaning some of them have been in the military and they will straight up say being in the military radicalized me. Yeah. Being in the military, seeing how it runs, seeing what we're sent to do, seeing what we're doing in other countries, seeing how the government lets us live, seeing how the government treats us, seeing how little people are able to survive and the harm we cause abroad, that is what radicalized me. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, where else are you going to see firsthand enormous government waste, enormous imperialist harm caused abroad? Like, that's where you're going to see all of these things. So, whatever. Long story short, depending on where you stand on that issue, the United States is actively choosing to use our tax dollars to make the CEOs of places like Lockheed Martin even richer instead of using that money to provide free college tuition to us all when we could easily afford it and the only thing we would need to cut is waste and overcharging. Yeah, like there's just, it's so funny because like politicians, mainly conservative, but even like, you know, Democrat will be like, the waste is on the poor people scamming. It's like, no, no. <laughs> the waste is on your biggest lobbyers. Yes. Scamming. That's totally what it is. And of course, my take on all of this is that we should just have free college for everybody. And we should probably just cancel all existing student loan debt. So all of this thought process is bringing me to think of like, what would happen if we just got rid of it? If we just got rid of all student loan debt? And William Foster, who's the lead sovereign analyst for the U.S. government at Moody's Investor Service, says universal student loan debt cancellation would only marginally increase the U.S. government's debt burden and lead to forfeited revenue to the government equal to 0.4% of our GDP annually. So this really isn't much of an effect at all. And that's because as of 2019, the majority of the $1.2 trillion in student loan debt that's owned by the federal government that was in the form of direct loans. And forgiving them would not add to the country's debt stock because direct loans are funded by the U.S. Treasury bonds and are already incorporated into the debt America owes at the time of their origination. It's already being incorporated into that. So people paying them back or not doesn't affect what our total debt is. Ah! Yeah. So even if the government then also purchased and subsequently canceled $402 billion of privately held student loan debt, that would only add about 2% GDP to the national debt burden. So basically, none of this would really affect the U.S. government that much at all. But it would immensely affect regular people and especially, especially marginalized people who are struggling with debt repayment the most in a major way. About one in every six American adults owes money on a federal student loan. Uh, and that means that one in six American adults would have a positive personal financial response to canceling student loans. And those already in default on their student loans who are disproportionately more likely to be indigenous, black, or Latino – Research shows that they would benefit the most from just canceling that. 
Like, black and Hispanic women would benefit statistically on top. As 5.4% and 4.7% of these population members would be free of student debt completely, respectively. That's a huge percent of the population whose financial uh, kind of burden would just be alleviated. And authors of this one study looked into a company called National Collegiate, who couldn't prove in court that it owned the debt it was trying to collect based on college loans, okay? This was like a private loan company. So this ended up freeing borrowers from having to pay back those loans. So this is a pretty good example of just like a bunch of people, 10,000 people suddenly got their student loans waived. What happened? What happened when it was canceled? So these researchers looked at these people and kind of followed them and did statistical analysis on what happened. And one of the study's co-authors, Ankit Kalda, said that when these people had their loans discharged, they moved, they got new jobs, and they made more money. And he also showed that borrowers overall were less likely once their loans were just vanished to file for bankruptcy, to have their houses be foreclosed on, or even to default on their medical bills. Yeah, so other studies show that in addition to potentially lifting 5.2 million American households out of poverty, canceling student loan debt could also end up adding up to 1.5 million new jobs in the United States. Yeah, because imagine you're not spending money on student loans. You know what you're doing? You're buying shit. Exactly. Yeah, with student loans all gone, funds are suddenly freed up for average people to do more consumer spending, which is, you know, the thing that's the backbone of the U.S. economy under capitalism. You know what I was thinking? This is fucked up. I think it's because I was watching the Shiny Happy People show. It's like, if you were conservative, you'd be like, well, now people can afford to have children. Totally, but that's true. A lot of people are like, I can't afford to have children because of my student loan debts. And and on top of that, like, you know, all of the avocado toast and the lattes that conservatives always make fun of young people or poor people for buying. Well, you know, we do have to be buying that shit in order for the country to function. That is consumer spending. And that's one of many reasons it's ridiculous to chastise people for doing it. But it turns out, yeah, when poor people are not burdened by student loans, they can afford to buy more small, simple treats for themselves. And when people buy more in a system of capitalism, companies earn more and they hire more people to meet the newfound work demands. Not as much as they should. They still like to overwork everybody and try to up their profits. But, you know, they do hire more people in general. And I think about this with our workplace all the time. Because during lockdowns, when people were earning $4,000 per month in unemployment, our sales were up like 200% over the previous year. Oh, it rocked. Yeah, people suddenly have money. Not COVID, not COVID, but the financial ramifications for our business, it was wild. People had money they could afford to spend on consumer goods. Our business blew up and we were able to hire like five new people. Oh my gosh. I was able to like, oh yeah, it was just like. Yeah. And that's what happens when you give people money. When people have money in their pocket to spend on shit they just like, uh, you know, they spend it at companies, companies get more revenue and business booms. So if we're going to do capitalism, right, giving people more spending money rather than keeping it tied up in one industry, student debt, it's better for the economy on the whole. And each time a consumer's student debt to income ratio increased by 1%, their consumption, like just spending money wise, declines by as much as 3.7%. So basically for every dollar somebody owes, they're spending $3.70 less. So getting rid of debt on the flip side would increase consumer spending by that same ratio. Not burdened by student loans, other things start to grow in the country too. Things like single family home purchases just by individual people, not like giant investment groups. Or like you referenced, Kenna, childbirth rates because yeah, people can afford to start families. Even small business groups increase. 
for like when student debt grows by 3.3 percent we see that the number of new startup businesses in the country shrinks by 14 and a half percent so when people aren't burdened by student loan debt they are more likely to start small businesses and do all of these things that they would otherwise feel too stressed out or cash strapped to do so then the question is like why aren't we just doing this then Canceling student loan debt would be better for the economy. Offering free college tuition would be pretty manageable on the whole and not that much of a financial burden at all. And, you know, the reason why we're not doing this is because student loan relief, like most things, has become a political tool, right? That's used to win elections rather than something we consider like a legitimate thing we should do to just help people. It's cheap to implement. It benefits marginalized people the most. And ultimately, it's better for the economy long term. But we are so insistent upon punishing people here in the United States that we refuse to do the rational thing, which is just forgive all student debt and make all public universities free to attend. All paid for with a modest, humble 10% cut to our overinflated military budget, which only serves to make wealthy defense contractors even richer. Yeah. So the student loan crisis in the U.S. in a lot of ways to me is just a symbol of the ongoing inefficiencies of capitalism on the whole and how kind of like you always say, the greatest conspiracy is just capitalism. It's just a few rich guys (laughs) exist and control everything so that they can get richer. And in this situation, it's the Northrop Grumman guys. It's the Raytheon guys. And, you know, I think it's some of these college bank guys probably so kind of what do you think what do you think about the episode on student loans cancel the student loans cancel the student loans and make college free yeah fuck yeah yeah like you know stop punishing people stop punishing people for being for taking out loans when they're teenagers and you know what no matter what your belief system i think we all should agree the military budget is wild oh my god it's so messed up over there and also i think that the northrop grumman raytheon people the merchants of death shouldn't earn 20 million dollars a year no no i think they're bad people who kill people in other countries and profit off of it i think that's evil i think that's evil too you know what i had this friend once who had a kid And the kid came back from kindergarten one day and he goes, mommy, do you think it's okay to kill people with guns for freedom? I think I talked about this in our parenting episode, actually. Oh, I don't remember. Okay. Okay. So she tells me, yeah, he came home from school and he asked me this. And I was just like, oh my God, how do you answer that question to like a five-year-old? What did you say? She's such a good mom. She said, well, you know, mommy doesn't think that it's ever okay to kill anybody for any reason whatsoever. But when you're older, you can decide if you think it's okay to kill people with guns for freedom. Uh, And you know what? I think I'm old enough. I think I'm 36. I don't think it's okay to, to... For the United States to kill people with guns in other countries to make the Northrop Grumman Raytheon people richer. I don't think that's okay. And it's not for freedom. It's not... We're not upholding a system of freedom here. We're upholding a system of endless cycles of debt and oppression for American people. And just calling it freedom, just saying we're doing it for freedom... You know, I think a five-year-old kid was skeptical of that. And I think it's safe to say most of us are skeptical of that. What is, what is the reason for upholding all of these, all of the funding for things that are bad and awful in the world and harmful to people and never allocating funding to anything that actually helps people? Yeah. I mean, it's because the people at the top like it that way. They like it. They want, (laughs) they want the death and destruction. They're real fucking freaks, man. Mm. I'm not into it. Me neither. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. Uh, be wholesome. Cancel student student debt, yeah. I think. I think that's what it's all about. Anyway, that's it. That's our episode on uh, student loans. 
thanks so much for listening to another episode of Pick Me Up, I'm Scared. If you would like to hear more of us, you can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. For $3 a month, you can access bonus content amounting to two free episodes per month. That's $1.50 per episode and not too bad. Uh, And if that sounds like too much for you, that's totally fine, man. We get it. We're just happy you're here. As always, you can find all of our sources for this episode in our episode description. Just scroll down a bit. Thanks so much. Love ya.